Okay, members, um, welcome to the meeting. In the room with me today, I have Robin Newton and Andy Allen. And on Starleaf, at present, we have Karen Mullen, the Vice Chair Kelly Armstrong, Mark Durkin, and Alex Eason. Um, so, uh, just but, but well, we're just going to go straight into our ministerial briefing on regional and sub-regional stadia programmes. Can I ask that we bring the um, minister and officials into the spotlight? Uh, minister, can you hear us? Yes, can you hear me okay? I can indeed. I know you've been having some difficulties oh, getting on this morning. Sorry, I, yes. <laughs> I know, I know. Can I ask you just before we start, Minister, what is your time frame with us? Um, okay, for half an hour. For half sure. an hour from now, that, that would be great. That's good. Um, so, members, um, just want to welcome then the Minister, and she's accompanied by Catherine Hill and Jacqueline Fearon. Um, Minister, I know there was no paper on this. The members are, are well over the issue. Um, do you want to say a few words just before we start questions? And I mean a few words. Yeah, no, well, just obviously, um, both in terms of the Casement Park development as part of the regional stadia programme and also the sub-regional stadia programme are two commitments in the New Decade New Approach Agreement um, that was signed up to last year with the restoration of the Assembly. So. As Minister, it's obviously still my commitment to deliver on those programmes um, in this election mandate um, and to move ahead as quickly as we possibly can. So just obviously happy to take the opportunity to come and meet with committee members today. Okay, thank you, Minister. I'm going to open up for members to ask questions. I have Andy and then I have Alex waiting. Andy? Thanks, Chair. Minister, are you able to give a more definitive timeline on the sub-regional? Um, You'll appreciate, obviously, where this was an original commitment alongside the regional back to this wider project. Yeah, no, Andy, well, I can understand, obviously, the frustration um, of some of the clubs out on the ground. Obviously, when I came in the office last year and looked at the sub-regional stadia, um, the initial plan, as you said, was back almost now 10 years ago. Um, there was an initial consultation then again back in 2016. But obviously, with the, the um, collapse of the assembly, then that didn't progress. When I came into post then, I thought that it was prudent um, to do a review of the programme just to make sure, because of the time lapse, um, being almost 10 years as it was last year, that we needed to review um, as quickly as possible just the policy intent and where the programme uh, was going. And that then I had asked for um, a review to look at sub-regional stadia. Obviously, we know that it is a commitment in the agreement. We know that the 36.2 million, um, as was agreed over 10 years ago, um, is still there um, at the moment. Um, and so what I had done was to look at um, updating the evidence base for which the programme was based because of the time lapse and now obviously because of the impact of the pandemic and sports um, may look a bit differently and obviously we want to ensure that any programme meets the needs uh, going ahead for the sports, um, not just now but in the future. So what we have been doing is obviously doing an extensive club survey. We've been going out and engaging with clubs just to see, to get an update of what their facilities are like, uh, what their views on a programme should be. Um, and to take those in. There's also been a series of strategic discussions with key stakeholders and we have also established a working group um, with those key stakeholders in terms of looking at the programme uh, going forward. And we just want to make sure that it does, as I say, reflect the current, but also importantly, the future needs um, of football in the time ahead. So we're nearly in terms of looking at those at the minute. We're obviously just assessing all of the surveys that are coming back in 
um, and then that will be presented to me in the time ahead just in terms of looking at what the programme is going to look like, signing off on that, and then obviously going to the executive then for approvals. Okay, thanks, Minister. And at this stage, you're not able to give a definitive timeline as to when that might be. If I recall, reflect back to the, the budget forecast that we've been provided with, I think the substantive amount of uh, financial capital in relation to sub-regional is not uh, earmarked till the 2022-23 financial year. So is that what we're working at at the moment um, in terms of being on the ground delivering uh, sub-regional? Yeah, well, I think that's put in in terms of the actual spend. I mean, there'll be a lot of work that will need to be done um, in advance of that um, in terms of the programme going live. So, live, sorry. So, obviously, I mean, I do want to move on this as quickly as possible. I recognise the, the delay um, in this, but I thought that it was when I come in the office in terms of making sure that I do have a sound evidence base, which is up to date. Um, that's taken a bit of time, obviously, with COVID in terms of engaging with clubs. But I felt that it was important that I did do that touch base again with uh, clubs on the ground and I suppose reflecting on the consultation that took place since 2016. I want to progress this as quickly as possible and I suppose once I have more definitive timelines um, I'll bring that back to the committee as early as possible. Okay and, and Minister you outlined obviously the the previous budget earmarked for sub-regional uh, 35.2 uh, million was it? Um, and obviously, uh, and we've seen with uh, the, the likes of the regional stadium, the cost of the wider projects have, have increased. And I know, obviously, uh, sub-regional is slightly different in its makeup. But do you envisage then the sub-regional stadium allocation increasing, given that the cost of materials and manufacturing and so forth so on uh, has increased over the time period in which this project has not been delivered? Yeah, well, obviously, we have the amount there that has been previously agreed, 36.2 million um, in terms of sub-regional stadia. Obviously, we're doing the assessment at the moment in terms of looking at the need. Um, that would be a case for the executive then if there was a, a bigger amount of money um, in terms of being allocated or an increase in that fund. I can only work with what I've got at the moment. Um, but if we are seeing that there are big challenges and issues around inflationary raises, for example, in construction, then that would be something that I would have to take to the executive for for approval. Okay, thanks, Minister. And just just quickly to touch on the the regional stadia, um, the the forecast at the moment, and I know your officials have stressed that it is preliminary forecast would indicate a forty million increase. Do you envisage um, the the public purse picking up the the full uh, cost of that, the forty million, if that is the case, or, or do you envisage the the GAA um, making a, a larger contribution? Well, I think obviously, I mean, we know the reasons for the delay and I suppose that has been unfortunate, but it's been essential as well that it goes through just the prudency and obviously um, the legal action that was taken as well um, around safety concerns and that. So um, it has been unfortunate, obviously, that the delay has meant a potential increase in the cost. I think I've been Carl when she was in post um, whilst I was off, had said publicly, um, you know, that the increase that the GAA need to be looking at that as well and playing their part in terms of meeting those costs and obviously the assembly and the executive uh, doing the same. I suppose I mean, we've seen the other two regional stadia at Kingspan and Windsor and we can see the real community benefits that they are having. So obviously I am committed to seeing Casement Park developed um, and indeed we'll be entering into negotiations obviously around the financial split in the time ahead with I would imagine both the assembly and also the GAA uh, making uh, extra contributions to that overall cost. 
Okay, thanks, Minister. I appreciate the request for time. I'll, I'll leave it there. I could go on, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. If more time at the end, I'll come back to you. I have Alex, Kelly, Mark, and Sinead. Can any members let me know because I'm basing you the length of time of questioning here on how many members are wanting to ask questions. So if you come in at the end, you might not get in. Um, Alex, can you bring Alex in? Hello, can you hear me? I can indeed. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Uh, hi, Minister. Thanks for coming in today. Um, Minister, in, in terms of the sub-regional stadia, will you be able to ensure that um, those clubs, especially in football, um, and I think about the likes of Bangor football team, um, that they will all get their fair share of funding? Um, as, as there is a, a perception... Oh, Alex is frozen on us. Can you hear us, Alex? No, look, um, Minister, can you still hear me? Yes, yes. Right, but Minister, just, I'm going to bring Alex back in whenever he, he unfreezes. Okay, and, yeah, all right. no bother. <laughs> I'm going to go then on to Kelly, if that's okay. Can we bring Kelly in? Thank you, Minister, um, and thank you very much for being with us this morning. Um, Minister, it has, as you have said, been 10 years since the sub-regional um, strategy was had come forward. Um, the policy intent remains the same, but now that you're updating the evidence base, um, is there any criteria change that you're considering or anything else that you're looking at? Um, um, we know that the money um, from 10 years ago would have allowed X number of stadia, regional stadia, sub-regional stadia, sorry, to be developed. What is that looking like now? Uh, is there any other bids maybe going through um, SIB or anyone else to incre increase the value of the offer um, when that's launched? Well, we're obviously working with SIB just in terms of updating um, the need. Um, and obviously, I think it was important that we go out again and engage with clubs on the ground. I know from the 2016 consultation, um, clubs, you know, wanted a review in terms of looking at the, the programme as well because of the time lapse even then. So I think it is important, obviously, in the context of COVID as well, um, that there are fresh eyes on this, um, obviously, that it's done as quickly as possible because I know clubs have waited now over 10 years and I accept and acknowledge that. Um, but it is important um, that when we're putting su such a substantial investment in, um, that it is actually meeting the needs of the sport now, but also into the future. So we have done extensive engagement with clubs through the survey and obviously with the stakeholder group, which involves the likes of all of the councils, because obviously they would have their own pressures in terms of uh, facilities um, across the north. Also with the IFA and obviously the NI Football League um, and Sport NI as well, just to make sure that we are taking a real strategic look at what the, the current but future need of the sport um, is as well. So I will be looking at what that means in terms of the programme, what the breakdown of funding will look like um, in the time ahead. Um, and once I have all of that analysis and information back, then I'll be given all of that uh, my fullest consideration um, in terms of the different levels from grassroots right up um, and then making my determination um, and announcement in the time ahead. So we'll have more detail around that, sorry. I will come back to the committee um, just to set that out. 
And that'd be very, very welcome. I'm just thinking in that 10 years, our building regulations managed through the Department of Finance will have changed significantly. We know at the minute that, for instance, that there's any public buildings that have toilets will be required to have changing places, toilets for people with disabilities. So there's a lot has been added to criteria for, for building to future-proof. Um, I'm just thinking that the 36.2 million, it's not going to go too far. Or if um, clubs are providing, you know, compliant with the building regulations, I, 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 I would support you completely in additional funding, hopefully coming through SIB or what other mechanism that we can access, because I believe that 10 years ago, 36.2 million um, was a lot of money. It still is a lot of money, but compared to what you can buy now, compared to 10 years ago, it's, it's not as much. Thank you very much, Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Can I bring Alex in again and see? I think he's reconnected. What's oh, going on? There you are. <laughs> You're back with us. Sorry, Alex, you dropped out uh, very early on. Um, or into uh, your question, do you want to just go over that quickly again for me? Yeah, Minister. What? What? Um, hopefully, you'll hear. <laughs> um, what can you do to make sure that um, clubs on the sub-regional stadia um, at lower tiers, like Bangor Football Team, get their fair share? Of um, of monies towards stadia, um, because there there is a perception that maybe some of the bigger clubs will benefit, and the lower ones maybe won't. That's my first thing. Um, my second one on on casement, um, the money for the 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 regional amount, which was divided between the football, the rugby, and the GAA, for those uh, three particular projects. Um, I think, from my perspective, um. It would be unfair if the GAA were to receive substantial more money to build Casement Park um, from government more than what was agreed in the first place. Um, and I do believe that the GAA do have to contribute for any of the extra funding if they they want to uh, progress this. Um, I just I don't want it to be seen that the others would have lost out financially. Um, and if the the GA these extra costs, so it's, it's very important from my perspective and from my support that the GA make substantial contributions to this development. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks very much, Alex. And I suppose the first thing in terms of the sub-regional stadium, I mean, I thought it was important for the reasons that you're pointing out to make mm -hmm. sure that I did um, look at the evidence base again that I engaged with clubs at all of those levels. Um, that fall under the sub-regional programme to ensure yeah. that we are looking at what their current needs are, but importantly, what their future needs are um, in the time ahead. I think it was important that we do that analysis again, that we engage key stakeholders, as I say, such as councils, such as Sport NI, to look at the facilities that already exist um, across the board as well, and what we can do to complement um, those facilities and obviously build on them across the board. I do want to look at this um, in terms of at all levels, you know, um, in terms of sub-regional for those that are higher up, but importantly at the grassroots as well in terms of the feeders um, of young people that are coming through the sport um, and making sure that we're looking at that consistency um, across the board. So once that assessment is done, I mean, I've said that I will come back to the committee in terms of laying out uh, what my direction is for the programme. Um, that will be based on sound evidence in speaking um, to all of the different uh, clubs that are out there and obviously associations such as the IFA, the NI uh, Football League, 
Sport AI and Councils, who are all part of the working group um, that was established um, in terms of looking at this process now. So um, I will lay that out shortly, um, as I say, and I'll come back to the committee just in terms of giving the rationale uh, around that. And obviously, as I say, I mean, we have the 36.2 million. You'll understand that that's what I have to work to. Um, but if there are, you know, a need or a glaring need or gap in terms of finances, then that would have to be something that would go back to um, the executive. I think in terms of the casement stuff, I mean, the legal challenge couldn't be avoided. You know, there, there's reasons for um, it's unfortunate that it got to that point, but obviously it was also important that um, the due process uh, was followed in terms of the legal challenge. And obviously the lapse of time has had an impact. We're obviously still awaiting on the full planning permission to be issued before we can complete the final business case. Um, I know the planning announcement was back in October, but we're still waiting on obviously the final certificate uh, being issued. I think, I mean, for me, the focus around the regional stadia is developing stadia, which is fit for purpose for each of the sporting codes. Um, we have seen, obviously, as I say, Kingspan and Windsor uh, be developed. In fairness, they've been able to operate within their new stadia and to look at income generation where the GAA haven't. You know, casement has been laid um, adrift, it's overgrown. Anybody that can see it, um, there's been no use um, in terms of that facility. So my focus in all of this is about delivering on a stadia um, fit for purpose for that sport in terms of young gales that are coming up in the time ahead, that they can have um, a stadia in which they can play and in which they can develop the sport, um, not just at Belfast, but right across um, Ulster uh, as well and beyond. Um, so we obviously are going through the due diligence. We have to wait on that um, final planning certificate being issued um, before the assessment can be completed. And then obviously, yes, there will be a negotiation um, and a discussion around the cost. And as I have said, I mean, there is an expectation that if there is an increase in cost, then that has to be shared um, as well. And obviously there will be a negotiation with the GAA um, around that. But again, my commitment is to deliver on this facility. I think young people, I mean, I played Camogie myself. I played in Casement Park as a child. Um, and for over, you know, uh, over six years at least now, young gales have not had the same opportunity. Um, and I think we need to afford them. I see that um, at the stadium at Windsor Park. Um, I see that over at Kingspan in terms of young uh, rugby and football players who now have the opportunity um, to feel the benefits of those facilities. And we need to get the, the last uh, strand of the, the regional developed. Okay. Okay, thank you, Alex. I have Mark, Sinead, Robin, and Andy wanting back in again, and we're probably don't have more than maybe 10, 15 minutes left. So can I go to Mark? Thank you, Chair, and thanks, Minister. Thanks for coming along. It's good to, to see you. In terms of the sort of regional stadia uh, fronting, uh, the, the points have been made or the concerns made around the 36.2 million, that's not going to go anywhere near as far as it might have. A, a few years ago, the danger there is, I suppose, that the size of grants that uh, clubs are able or organisations are able to avail of might be reduced, or the number of clubs that are able to avail of grants uh, will, will inevitably uh, reduce. Uh, this fund has taken on almost mythical proportions now. Clubs have been hearing about it and talking about it that long. 
So, so uh, I mean, they'll be chomping at the bit to, to, to see it progress, and we look forward to hearing uh, progress on it, M Minister. I just uh, want to ensure, while Alex has spoke up for, for the smaller clubs, I, I would concur with that. But I think it's it's also extremely important that there's a fair regional distribution of this uh, fund as well, right across the north. With regards to casement, there's been a bit of discussion there regarding the increase in cost and the, a discussion around the contribution of the or from the GAA and what that might be and while you say that the amount of that contribution is likely to increase, would the Minister be of the view that the proportion of it should increase as well? Okay, well, I think um, the first thing, Mark, in terms of the sub-regional stadium, I mean, it, it has been a long time and it wasn't an easy decision last year to pause in terms of having a reassessment of the programme and what the previous commitments were. But I thought that it was important to do that because of the time lapse, because that there, there was a feeling, you know, that the programme maybe didn't meet um, all of the needs in the way that it could. It's never going to completely meet all of the needs because it's a limited pot of money. And as I say, if there was a need to increase um, the, the programme, that would be a matter for the executive. Obviously, they agree with other financial, um, I suppose, requests coming across all of the other departments for capital. Um, but again, I mean, I'll look at that as part of the assessment in terms of the demand, what the need is, um, even in terms of upgrading facilities around some of the disability uh, needs that may be there or changing facilities, for example, in terms of encouraging women. Um, in, the, in the sport um, as well. So I think it was important to do the assessment to make sure, I mean, you touch on in terms of having regional balance and, and looking at the investment across the board. That's why we have taken the time to go out and survey clubs again, to establish this strategic stakeholders working group to get as up-to-date information as we can, not just looking at the here and now, but also where the clubs potentially will be in the future as well. And obviously taking into account the pressure that COVID has played. So once that um, analysis is done, obviously I will be looking at how best with the financial um, money that we have at the moment, how best we can meet those needs. And if obviously there is a glaring gap in terms of a resource, then that would have to be the executive in terms of then there would have to be a, a proposal um, or a request put to the executive um, to be considered in the time ahead. So I suppose I'll update members um, as we look at that. In terms of the cost around casement, I mean, it is still live at the moment. I'm conscious there will be a conversation and a negotiation with um, the Ulster Council GAA as well. I think um, that with any increase in costs, obviously, uh, we have to look at that um, in the round in terms of the contribution that the GAA can make, but also the Assembly as well. I suppose that all has to be taken into account in that the GAA haven't been able to operate this facility as well. Uh, for the years that it's been closed. And, you know, I reflected that in the previous um, question. The other two stadia have been developed. Um, there was obviously no on-due um, or long-term delay for those. And they have been able to operate, obviously, generating income as well. Um, and so I recognise that that hasn't been the case um, for the GAA. So whilst we wait on the planning permission um, being issued, um, which I do hope uh, is going to be soon, um, that will then allow us to complete the full business case and then to move to the next phase in terms of knowing what uh, the bottom-out costs are 
and then where that leaves us in terms of uh, what the gap is around funding. So I'll be able to update. I mean, I can't get into too much detail now. You'll understand um, because there will be conversations to be had um, in terms of what way that's going to go in the time ahead. Um, and obviously, I'll be keeping my engagement ongoing with the GAA as I have been uh, throughout this. Thank you, Minister. And well, you might require the, the green form or the, the planning certificate to proceed with the, the full business case. Uh, surely most of this work will have been done by now because I know like the funding for Kingspan and Windsor Hanford for Kingspan itself had actually been approved prior to any planning approvals being issued. There's rough estimates, but the full business case can't be completed. Um, so there's a level of due diligence, obviously, that is being done. Um, there's scenario planning that's being done. There's a whole range of issues that are being done. It can't be progressed, though, until the green certificate has been issued. No, we are working on the assumption. I mean, I've been in contact with the Minister for Infrastructure um, who's advised that they're working on it at the moment, but we don't have that certificate as of yet. Um, and we need to wait in terms of progressing to that next phase um, until the certificate has been issued. I know the GAA are working obviously with the legal team in terms of drawing up the heads of terms around that. And I am hopeful that that will be issued um, shortly. And then that will move into the next phase of um, having the full uh, business case completed and then obviously looking at what, what the cost is and then how that cost will be broken down in terms of contributions by the executive, but also by the GAA. But I suppose, I mean, there is a commitment from me. It was the, the project that I visited when I came in the office last year. Um, as I say, the other two stadia have been developed um, and I am determined to have this developed in the time ahead. And I can't resist asking you, have you got a ballpark figure? Well, we can. I mean, I know the, um, Gavin was in um, in terms of her finance at the moment. We obviously can't. I mean, in terms of construction inflation and all of that, I have to wait on the final green form uh, being issued um, to bottom out then the full business case and then to look at where things are sitting then. So once we do have that figure, I mean, I don't want to start throwing figures out at the moment until I know that we have the full. It wouldn't be prudent of me to do that. I don't think it would be good um, to do that at this point, just to guess what the figure will be once we have the green form, once we bottom out the business case as quickly as possible after that, then the figure will be known um, and that will be known publicly. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Minister. Okay, thank you, Mark. I'm going to move swiftly on to Sinead. I'm conscious of the Minister's time, so I have two members who haven't asked a question yet and Andy who wants to come back. So, Sinead. Thank you, Chair, um, and good morning to the Minister. Uh, I just want to make a, a, an observation, first of all. I think I think we as members, elected members, need to be very mindful of our, our language um, and the type of assertions that we throw around, maybe consciously or, or unconsciously at these um, at this committee meeting, because um, you know, there's cries here of unfairness in terms of the GA's uh, contribution or what they've been asked to contribute. But I think members need to be mindful that while they're they're asking the GEA to contribute more. Uh, there's been no mention throughout any of these uh, meetings that I've sat through on, on sub-regional uh, that while they're calling for sub-regional to get more money, there hasn't been any uh, conversation as to maybe the IFA would contribute more 
or, or you know, if rugby is to be included in any other sort of sub-regional, that rugby would contribute more. So I think we need to be very, very mindful of what we're actually calling for here um, and, uh, and that need to strike a, a balance and to uh, proceed uh, to proceed in, 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 uh, in fairness to, to all the sporting goals. Um, I mean, nobody's, I haven't heard anybody say yet that maybe soccer should contribute 20% more to the sub-regional as, uh, as people are asking the GEA to, to contribute more to. So I think we just need to be very mindful of that um, and to always have that, that uh, aspect of fairness in the back of our, our minds when we're, when we're dealing with this. Minister, I wrote to you on casement um, last week. I haven't had a reply yet, but I think it's fortunate you're with us today that I get to put it to you directly. And I have to say that I'm, I'm deeply shocked. I'm concerned, uh, very concerned, that it's four months since we had that landmark um, announcement by Minister Mallon that she was of a mind to um, approve this, uh, this application in terms of casement. And four months down the line, we're still no further on. Uh, you know, we're talking about costs and, and everyday costs are mounting in terms of casement park. So I think not only will Antrim GEA, but Ulster GEA and, and the, the quarter of a million members will be, will be shocked to learn that we're still no further on. Um, so, I mean, I think we need to inject a bit of urgency here, a bit of realism. Uh, this is, after all, an executive flagship project. And I know certainly from my experience with DFI over the last number of years, um, you know, myself and Paul Maskey, uh, the MP for West Belfast, we've been, in our dealings with DFI, we find that there's only ever been one full-time planner working on Caseman Park. Now, if that is still the case, and if that is still the reason why we haven't had um, the final sign-off from DFI on this project, that that would be a serious indictment um, on the Minister. So, can you just give us an update, um, Minister, just on, on where it sits now? And, um, and like, I mean, we, we all want, we all hope the casement will, will break sod within this mandate. Is that still a realistic possibility, given the delays in, in actually announcing the, flan, the, the final planning application? Well, I think firstly, I mean, as it was touched on, the planning or the announcement was made on the 13th of October. That obviously they instructed a process within Belfast City Council, a consultation, which I know was responded back to uh, by the council on the 20th of November. Um, I'm aware, I mean, I have ongoing meetings with the GAA um, in terms of this project going forward. Um, and they are saying that the discussions um, are ongoing with the Department of Infrastructure. <coughs> All the legal teams are drawn up the heads of terms in terms of the Section 76 agreement. Um, and the green certificate. Um, I wrote to Minister Malin uh, recently um, in terms of just getting a time scale as to where this is sitting because obviously I need to progress the full business case and to make sure that I'm doing all that I can to get the project delivered as quickly as possible. Uh, Minister Malin has replied um, just saying that work is still in progress. My understanding through the engagement with the GAA um, and DFI that that should be done soon. Um, and I am hopeful um, that over the coming weeks we will hear an announcement on that. Thank you. And, and just do you, do you, I mean, what is the, you know, what's the absolute um, bottom line in terms of, uh, you know, the, the executive uh, as a flagship project, which Casement is? Will we see delivery on that, do you, do you think, in this mandate if we don't have movement from DFI in terms of planning in the next, in the next short weeks? I'm determined to where I can to do all that I can to make sure that um, we do deliver on this um, as quickly as possible. Um, and obviously the time scales that I'm looking at is that we um, are hopeful to see that certificate issued over the coming weeks 
Um, I think it needs to be done uh, then in terms of uh, progressing um, the Casement Park development as quickly as possible. Um, and my understanding from the discussions is, is that they're getting close to that. Okay, and just one final point, uh, Chair. Just uh, um, there's been a lot of talk about the the GAS contribution as well, and you will know more than most minister. Um, you know the financial hardship that our sporting codes are are experiencing at this time. Um, the GAS annual congress um, will meet at the end of this month, and you know they're expected to show a deficit in terms of gate receipts into the the tens of millions, somewhere in the region of forty million uh, deficit there. So, I think that has to be very much borne in mind uh, in terms of what we're asking. Uh, the GA in this, in, in this instance to contribute? Yeah, I think I know about that obviously goes without saying. I mean, sport has been impacted right across the board. I mean, I spoke about it even in terms of the sub-regional stadia, in terms of what the future need of football is um, as well. Um, and we obviously need to, to, to build that into our considerations going forward. I've also mentioned the fact, you know, that because of the delays around casement, they haven't been able to realise uh, the full impacts in terms of having a stadium that's open and um, functioning um, and in terms of income generation coming in. So all of that has to be uh, considered um, in the time ahead. See, we will be getting into negotiations with the GAA um, once we have bottomed out what those final costs are. Um, but my big thing around the, the stadium programmes are the benefits that it's bringing in terms of support, uh, sport. Um, in terms of health and well-being, in terms of mental health, um, in terms of the impact and the positivity it brings to the communities in which these stadia um, surround, um, and the wider impact in terms of events that they can attract and pull in as well. So all of that will be taken into the mix um, when we're looking at that, as was done uh, with the previous two stadia uh, developments as well, in terms of contributions that uh, rugby and also uh, the IFA, um, not just into the stadium development, but also wider programmes and contributions that they're making to the sports uh, more general. Yeah, fair enough. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Sinead. Uh, Minister, I'm really conscious we have slightly run over, but I have one member who hasn't asked, so with your indulgence. Yeah, no, that's okay. Okay. Yeah, of course. Can I move then on to Robin? Thank you, Minister. And, uh, Mr. This obviously is a, in a, in a, an important issue, but Minister, so also is the housing crisis and the growing homeless uh, situation that we have. So also is regeneration of communities. So also is support for children uh, that the department provides. Uh, and indeed, uh, the, the, the fact that uh, 14 months into a return to Stormont, the strategic plan for the department has not actually been presented to the committee with all the measurements uh, that, that uh, are, are absolutely uh, necessary. And I do think, seriously, Minister, that there is a, a case for you to be coming to the committee uh, and to present that strategic plan and discuss it with, with the committee. So having made that point, Minister, I do want to ask a very short question, particularly on the sub-regional static programme for, for football. And I absolutely agree with uh, Alex uh, and Mark uh, in the sense that they 
indicated that there has to be a degree of fairness uh, across the, the clubs and that all clubs should feel at the end of this programme that they have had a fair crack of the whip. But Minister, the consultation uh, started uh, in 2015. It closed in 2016. We're now in 2021. And just a short question, Minister. When do you expect that clubs will be laying the foundations for whatever uh, development that they uh, agree with the department? Well, thanks very much um, for your observation and questions. And I suppose the first thing, I mean, it is a commitment within the new decade, new approach to deliver on the sub-regional along with the regional stadia. And I'm committed as minister responsible to do that. Um, I want to see that uh, moved um, and in terms of allocations before the end of this election term. Um, I do think that it does need to progress um, as quickly as possible. You're right that the consultation, I mean, when I came into the office last year, the last consultation was almost four years old. Uh, the scene of football on the ground at the grassroots um, and more broadly has changed in that time. And I thought that it was important um, that I reflected on that change, notwithstanding the impact of the pandemic um, that uh, fell upon us um, last February and March as well. So I did think that it was important. I know it caused some frustration amongst clubs but I thought it was important that if I'm going to allocate money, um, listening to the concerns of clubs on the ground in terms of how this money will be allocated, that I did reach out to clubs again to get an update of what their needs are now and also in the future. Um, and once that um, analysis is brought back in in the time ahead, then I will be looking at what the programme is going to look like and obviously then making an announcement on that um, as quickly as I possibly can. I've already covered the issue in terms of the money. Obviously, I can only work at the moment with the 36.2 million that I have. Again, if there are huge gaps or concerns, then that will be ma a matter for the executive then to consider if any additional monies uh, go into this programme. And I know, I mean, people are already talking about a, a sub-regional part two, because obviously there is an acknowledgement as well, you know, that this is working in one sporting code and maybe is not looking um, at others as well, but that will be for future discussions. In terms of the wider stuff, I mean, I've given a commitment, um, Robin, that I will come to the committee. I know Thursdays are difficult because of the executive meetings and, and we're considering to look at other meetings. I think the issue you touch on, I mean, there is a huge housing crisis. This is nothing new. This is something that has been building over many years and there are fundamental reasons around that. That's why when Carl was in post, I mean, we did set out the biggest housing transformation uh, program that we have seen in the history, really from the establishment of the housing executive 50 years ago. And that is in recognition that we aren't building enough homes uh, each year, that we need to be more ambitious in terms of the homes. We need to allow the housing executive to draw down private sector investment in order to have a more ambitious housing development programme, working with housing associations and other. Uh, we, we need to look at the existing block. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there as well. And I suppose I do have the responsibility for developing the anti-poverty strategy. We're obviously doing that, engaging with communities out on the ground um, to co-design approach. I think there's a question for the executive, but also for the assembly and for politics more broadly. But, I mean, the pandemic has really shone a light on inequality and on poverty that has always been there. 
um, that has been entrenched in certain communities for generations. And there is, I mean, when you look, you can't deal with inequality and poverty without looking at the economy and where the distribution of wealth goes uh, within the economy. And there are serious questions and fundamental uh, things that we need to be looking at. Um, I think with any economic recovery, there has to be a social recovery. And indeed, that's something that I've been pushing for in terms of the department, but indeed right across the executive and across the assembly as well. We need to look at new models where the economy is working for people, where the ownership of the economy, and I'm, I'm exploring the idea of community wealth building. I want to set up an advisory group within the department to look at this, where we're looking at the development of cooperatives, of social enterprise, of community interest companies. I know there's talk in terms of a community or mutual bank, in terms of then how finance and um, throughout the north is retained and where that can be redistributed into new environmental programs, into new community renewal programs, and so that we're not losing the interest into investors that just take the money back out again. So I think there is a, a big opportunity for us um, as political leaders to think differently, to ensure that we're embedding a rights-based approach at the heart of government and all that we're doing. And I'm committed as Minister for Communities and listening uh, to those communities on the ground over this pandemic, um, that we do need to do things differently, that we need to democratise more of what we're doing, um, that people within communities need to feel ownership of the economy, they need to feel the positive benefits of that, and we need to have systemic change to allow them to, to feel those benefits. Chair, with your indulgence, can I, Minister, can I just bring you back to the question that I ask on the subregion of for football? When would you expect the successful clubs to be cutting the sword for their development? Well, I suppose, Robin, you'd opened up with a, a, a statement, and I thought it was important that I responded no, to that. That's, that's, I'm, I'm quite content said, with have, that, Chair. That's been an interesting yeah. statement you made. And I have said um, that uh, I am committed to developing this programme within this election mandate, obviously, in terms of clubs then applying to the programme, the assessments and that being done. Um, I can't give you a firm timetable yet, but I am committed that this programme will be up and running uh, for this election mandate um, in terms of the allocations. Once I do have a more definitive timeline, the assessments are coming back to me soon. Once I have a definitive timeline in terms of what the programme will look like, timescales for opening up that programme and closing dates, I can then come back to you with a more definitive timeline around when uh, the money will be, uh, I suppose, paid out to local clubs and when they can start the work. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. Minister, I know we have now gone way, way over your time, and Andy has no. a quick supplementary, if you'll take it. If you can't, I understand. Yeah, no, go on ahead. Go ahead, Andy. Thanks, Chair. Minister. And be quick. Yeah, I will be quick, Chair. Uh, Minister, just looking at the budget forecast here, and I will be quick and being mindful of my comments, um, it's clear the Department are under huge pressure, significant pressure in relation to resource and capital. This year, if you take, for example, a loan, um, nearly $100 million, uh, less than what was bid for was allocated. And, and looking at the further years across the, the board, um, the, the Department forecasts $381 million, $405 million, $471 million. It's clear the Department are unlikely go, uh, going to get the, the level of capital resource needed to deliver all the project. What engagement do you have with the Finance Minister in respect to that, in highlighting 
the, the various programmes that need to be delivered, whether that be housing, sub-regional, regional, um, homelessness, uh, disability, etc. Well, there's been ongoing engagements, obviously, with all executive ministers um, in terms of looking at this issue. There has to be an engagement as well in terms of the British Treasury. I mean, you'll notice throughout all of the budgets, um, there are commitments in terms of new decade, new approach, but that hasn't fallen through with the financial commitments from the British Treasury. Um, and that did include the revitalisation of the housing executive. It did include the regional and sub-regional stadia and the resources that need to come along with that. So I know that the executive as a whole, including the finance minister, um, has been in uh, strategic conversations with Treasury, uh, with the Secretary of State in terms of looking at these issues. Obviously, a flatline budget that has been given to us and the block grant is a huge concern. Um, and we're trying to look at that at the moment. My priority, obviously, within the budget is to protect those most in need, um, to ensure that people don't fall through the net. Um, and that is difficult uh, with a flatline budget. Um, so I think those engagements need to continue. We need to get the commitments financially in terms of the new decade, new approach. All of the political parties in the Assembly signed up to that agreement with the restoration of the Assembly last year. Now we need to see the financial commitments follow um, with that important agreement in terms of building st uh, stability and strengthening, I suppose, the Good Friday Agreement overall. Okay, Chair. Can, can I come back in, or are you okay for time, Minister? Or well, I need to go. Um, okay. That's the only thing. Apologies, Andy. I know I like I come back in there, but no, no like, Minister, thank you. I know we've gone well and truly over the the time, and I know you've got to get on to another meeting. Um, you'd mentioned there about um trying to set up another meeting, and we know Thursdays just are not working for, for us at all. Um, so we're hopefully we're going to progress along with um, the clerks and your officials to get you, we'll get an informal MS Teams type meeting um, for a Wednesday. So we look forward to that, and thank you again for joining us today and for allowing that little bit of flexibility and time as well. Thanks very much. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Thanks Minister. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, members, there's a sound of like a foghorn somewhere in this yeah. building, so there is. Yeah, so I don't know where it was coming from. I don't know whether it was in where the minister was, in the area she is, or whether it's this building. Um, Robin, it's you like want... a dead I know. Robin, sorry, you want to come in there? No, Chair, only just got a powerful position that you're in. You'll have to get the executive to change their meeting date and time. I, I know, yeah, we could try that. I don't think I'm that powerful that I could get the executive to change their meeting time. You know. But anyway, members, can we move on then to agenda item one then on our meeting packs? Oh no, we're Sorry. already done one. We'll move on to member to agenda item two. Um, so can I ask if there's any apologies? Sinead, have you an apology from Fra? Yes, Chair. Thank you. Apology from Fran. Thank you very much. Um, move on to agenda item three, which is Chairperson's <coughs> Business. <coughs> Members, you'll remember last week I'd informed you that I'd had a meeting with Unison. And before I go any further, I forgot last week to declare an interest. I am still a member of Unison. Um, we've received now a letter from them. Um, you'll find it at page five of your meeting pack, and they've highlighted that employers in the sector um, have, ha have highlighted there's been no inflationary up 
uplift in budgets for the supporting people programme since 2008, which we all know, and we mentioned that last week in, in our budget briefing. Um, so Unison has called for additional funding for supporting people programme, and also that the housing executive undertakes a review of how organisations currently funded by them use their funding, including pay in terms of conditions for their workers. Um, Unison believe that some of these organisations funded can and should be doing more to ensure their staff have decent pay and terms and conditions of employment. Um, can I ask members if they have any uh, comments? Are they content that we forward this letter to the department for comment? Content? Is it all frozen on me here? Uh, members content? Great. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Kelly. Sorry, that's my fault. I see your hand up. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry, I was just going to say, Minister, um, having worked after declaring interest, I worked in the community and voluntary sector for nearly 20 years before becoming an MLA. Um, I agree with your proposal to send this through to the department. Um, but there's another question I would like to actually ask the, the union or unison themselves. Um, I think we need to get uh, an update from the Minister on the Supporting People programme, which will come through, but also then to ask Unison, have they spoke to the Department of Finance to ensure any procurement arrangements reflect their request? Um, because um, I'm not sure, not all of the community voluntary sector get grants, some get contracts, and the contracting body would be a government department. Um, so I'm just wondering if there has been any discussions between Unison and Finance on that, would be because as a committee we could be covering ground that's already being dealt with elsewhere. Okay, thank you, Kelly, for that. Yep, that we can do that action certainly. Thank you. Um, uh, members, content we move on from that? Yes. Okay. Then can I ask you to turn to page nine, and there's a note there from our recent stakeholder event. Can I then just ask? Have we, members, any comment or proposals or for actions based on any of the notes that were taken at that? Andy? Yeah, ju just further to this, Chair, and um, there's so many important um, issues uh, arising from, from this stakeholder engagement. And obviously, after having this, we're, we're aware of the position in respect to special uh, rules for terminal illness. It's just if we can, um, if the committee's in agreement, write to the minister. I know there was some suggestion around uh, alternative proposals in the absence of funding for this, and just. For us to better understand as a committee where we are, if the minister uh, doesn't get the funding uh, to progress this this uh, cross-party uh, issue, uh, where, where that leaves us, and, and in respect to the engagement with DWP as the movement on, on a more UK-wide basis as well. Okay. Yep. I'm happy enough with that. Members agreed with that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Andy. Or sorry, Robin, you want to? No, I, I totally, totally agree with, with with what Andy's uh, proposing, what you've agreed, Chair. I just wonder if there is indeed a, a need to make sure that the, particularly the charities involved with terminal illness are aware of, of, of your letter going off. I think that would be important to encourage them, Chair. I know I had received a letter. I think all of the any of the what are the spokespersons in each party for communities received a letter from Craig Harrison yeah. from Mary Curry um, this week. So we can keep in contact um, with Craig and those other organisations as well. Around that, Kelly, you want to come in? Uh, Chair, I just wanted to actually thank our officials for arranging that meeting. It was extremely useful, but um, just to, to raise, I'm a little bit concerned that these are stakeholders that the, the committee are engaging with, but it doesn't seem to be that those who are involved in the department and the review of welfare mitigations are engaging with those groups. Um, in a recent reply to a question that I had submitted, um, officials have told me that they're reading documents, but they're not actually speaking to those stakeholders. I, I would like 
to ask um, formally through the committee to ask the department um, exactly who they are engaging with the stakeholders for the review of welfare mitigations um, because I'm a bit concerned that it's a paper-based exercise or a desk-based exercise whenever we do have online options. Um, and as we heard at that meeting um, with our stakeholders, there are so many important points. And when you're listening to the person and the organisations that they represent, um, it does really reflect the harshness that is happening out there. And um, I think it's important that we just find out from the, the department exactly how much stakeholder engagement that they're, they're completing. No, I think that's a good point. I can't remember whether it was through this committee or whether it was an assembly written question I'd put down asking about the co-design um, and who the, the department had spoken to when we had heard at that briefing that they there had been very little contact um, with the, those interested parties. So I think it's a good question for the committee to ask of the department and I certainly would back that as well. Andy, you want to come in? Just, just to echo Kelly's uh, point there, it's absolutely imperative that the department engage with the stakeholders because we're talking about people with... Uh, a great deal of experience and knowledge in this area and it would be a, a failure of the department's duty and um, not to engage with them and learn the uh, learn from them the learning that they've had from the on the ground work that they're doing it's absolutely vital that the information they have is fed into the department's thinking grant okay thank you um members can we move on from that issue then i have just another two items under chairperson's business and it's both stuff that has come through my constituency and it's to ask if other members um would be in agreement for more information and have they been contacted the first one's to do with the food pallet scheme um i've been contacted by one of my um community groups who've been rolling this out and the issues and the problems this has only been going a matter of weeks and um they they put in the community groups put in their order i think linus or i know linus foods won the, the tender on this and they're putting in their orders and quite often the food is not available and they're unable to replace the foods with similar items because the department have a strict uh, list of foods that can only be given out for for the community groups to, to use under the pallet scheme. So I, I know certainly it has caused problems within our community groups. Our community groups who have been doing such wonderful work now for the past year in delivering food and getting food out to those that are most in need. Um, there seems to be an awful lot of bureaucracy and red tape around this pallet scheme. Now they have said that the people they have been dealing with within the department and within Linus Foods have been excellent and very, very helpful. It seems to be much higher than that within the department. Um, you know, one example of is that they're only doing, for example, one make of cornflakes, and if Linus's don't have that, they're not allowed to replace it with another breakfast cereal. Same with washing powder. If they don't have it in stock, they're not allowed to replace it with another type of washing powder. So these are just basic items that people are really in need for. The, the bare basics, and uh, it's putting community community groups under an awful lot of pressure when someone calls to pick up a, a parcel, only to be told, no, we weren't delivered that stock this week. Um, so can I just ask them, members, I don't know if other members have had the same conversations with any of their community groups. But can I ask that we write to the department um, just to get a, a briefing on this issue, on the rollout of the food pallet scheme, and the, the, certainly to do with the bureaucracy and red tape around it. Members agreed with that? <coughs> yeah? Thank you. And the other one I just wanted yeah. to ask yeah. was, have members received any letters from constituents um, who work 
um, within the Department for Communities and the letters I received two letters yesterday afternoon. My clerks don't know about this, so I don't want to go into too much detail. Um, normally, when someone writes to us from a constituency level, we do not deal with it. Um, we bounce that to their local MLA. I just happen to be the local MLA for these two as well. But I'm just asking, have other members received a letter with concerns about their, their working arrangements within DFC? Um, I've got Kelly and then Andy. Kelly? Yes, Chair, I'm sorry, just to say yes, I've, I've received those as well. I am a little concerned. We are currently in lockdown. Um, I would, obviously, without going into too much detail, I would like the department to confirm um, what the arrangements are and why um, they are changing working arrangements where people are back in the office again. Okay, Andy, do you want yeah, to Chair, I'm not leaving the point. Yeah, I've received some of their letters as well. Okay. Uh, look, members, I'm quite conscious the clerks know nothing about this because I received these late yesterday afternoon. So I'm going to forward those on to the committee clerks and we'll get some sort of wording together um, for the department and we'll bring that back next week. Members, agreed? Agreed. Okay. All right, members, I'm going to move on then to agenda item four, which is draft minutes. You'll find these at page 17 of your meeting pack. Can I ask members of the content to agree the minutes of the 4th of February 2021 as drafted? Agreed. Agreed. Thank Agreed. you. Okay, we're going to move on then to agenda item five, which is matters arising. Members, you've been provided at page 25 with a copy of the 22nd report of the examiner statutory rules 2020-21. The examiner draws attention to SR 2021-14, the housing benefit and universal credit housing costs, executive determinations, modification regulations, Northern Ireland 2021. The department has acknowledged that the regulations were laid in breach of the 21-day rule and have explained the reason for the breach. The examiner is content that on this occasion, the department has provided a satisfactory reason for that breach. Are members content um, to note that. Content? Agreed. Okay. Members, then again, if we can move then to page 33 of your meeting pack, we've been provided with a ministerial response to queries on the delays in payments of the Winter Fuel Alliance. Um, the Winter Fuel payments for 2020-21 are being, being paid through a new digital seasonal payment service. DWP is aware of the issues delaying the payments to some customers. And as a consequence, DWP now anticipate that all payments will be made by the 31st of March 2021. Uh, members, again, any comments are content to note that correspondence? Andy? Sure. I would just highlight, you know, if the department can more widely share this information, um, because I'm still being contacted by constituents that are uh, unaware as to delay in their payment. And I know not everybody's on social media, for example, but if it just can be disseminated a lot wider, because a lot of people aren't aware of this. Yep. Thank you, Andy. Uh, Kelly, you wanted to come in there too, did you? It was exactly the same thing as Andy. I think that it's important that the department make uh, generally make people aware that there are some outstanding payments, but a bit like the COVID heating payment, we need to tell people that there's a cut-off date when these payments will be made and where they should phone if they have queries that they haven't received. No, look, thank you. No, no problem. Thanks for that. Members, then, can we move? Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry. Mark, did you? Uh, chair, yes, sorry, I didn't have my hand up, sorry. Uh, come here, it, it, it's on the winter fuel payment, and I've raised this a couple of times. I'm still not clear on the head as to why or how BWP are, are, are dealing with that for us. And I've asked a couple of assembly questions, I've got any different answers, and I've looked at answers that were given in Westminster, one to Gregory Campbell of all people, that, that there seem to be inconsistencies. Could we get some sort of paper or briefing 
on how and why the EFC are in house. Yeah, Mark, thank you for that, Gregory. I'll be really pleased to know that you're reading some of his uh, or his questions at Westminster. I know when I had spoken way back when this first um, the problem started, I'd spoken directly, managed to speak to somebody directly within the department, and they had said that if, whenever now this may not may or may not be, but their understanding was that whenever the assembly um, collapsed for those number of years, DWP had to take over control. Um, of the payment, so that may have something to do with it, but I think you're right, we could ask for a, an explanation. No, I, I remember you'd alluded to that before, Chair, but then it just got curiouser and curiouser the, the more I asked or read about it, because it goes back actually beyond that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, no, we can ask that question, Mark, no problem. Um, Robin, it's sorry, right. sorry, Robin yeah. wants to come in first, and then who wants to come in after that? Myself. Okay, Robin, sorry, <laughs> and then Sarah. myself. Ma oh. Ma Mark made the, the, the observation that it's curiouser and curiouser. It's actually worser and worser. <laughs> we are paying the winter fuel payments in spring. Yeah. You know, I know, I know. It's, I, I, it's not, I don't think it's the fault of the, the, the department as such. It is DWP, yeah. certainly. Um, but we can get more clarity on that. Okay, was that um, Sinead that said myself? No. No, who no, was sorry. it? Yeah, it was John. Go ahead. No, Chair, it was just to supplement Mark's, um, because uh, just to get clarity on it, because I suppose what, what I have been here and been told that the payments have always been made through DWP. So if we can just get the clarity around that and the time frame. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Karen. And the plot thickens with this one, so it does every time it comes up. So thank you for that. OK, we'll get that clarity. Members, happy and move on to the next item then? Yeah. Okay, members then, you, we've been provided a page 35 with a committee response to the draft budget 2021. Um, can I ask members if they have any comments or additions or if they are content to forward the response to the committee for finance? Page 35 of your brief, content members. Andy again. Yeah, Andy, no. you're on form this morning. Andy, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm absolutely content with, with what's there, Chair. It's just obviously in relation to the labour market interventions and I appreciate the officials briefed us, but given uh, the significance of this, if we can ask for a written update and see if any progress has been made on this, uh, the job, particular job start. Yep, absolutely. I'm happy with that. Um, members, any other comment? Or are they content that we move on with, with that as well? Kelly, your hand's up. I don't know if you want to speak. Yeah, um, sorry, yes, Chair. I was just going to say there's a couple of parts in this that I'm not happy with, um, if we could review that. Um, on page 35 itself, or the overview of comments, the third paragraph, um, after a robust questioning session, it was con uh, you know the committee was convinced that it's not a negotiating tactic. Um, I'm, I'm uh, I do think that there is a bit of negotiations going on there, so I don't know whether that's absolutely correct. Um, there are there is concerns about you know we've obviously raised quite a lot of um, um, information within this, but there's one part there on page thirty seven. Sorry, I was just getting it there under new decade new approach. Um, where it says the committee, the second paragraph of the committee questioned the department on the commitment in the NDNA to undertake an urgent review of Northern Ireland's welfare mitigations. Um, we had uh, mentioned it before, and again, I think we should put in there um, something about our lack of consultation because it's not just today, it has been previous times we've raised that. Um, it's just so that the department, or we have it in writing with the department, our concerns over the, the review of welfare mitigation. 
Okay, no, I'm happy enough with that as well. That's fine. Um, the clerks may need to come back to you, Kelly. Just is that, sorry, is that not covered in the next paragraph? Is the committee like raised on a number of cases. Not sure. Lack well, of yeah, of the, lack of progress on that. It is pretty much. Kelly, check the next paragraph. Robin's just pointed it out to me after that on page 37, the last paragraph. But it's not about the speed. It's the lack of consultation that I'm looking to be put in. Okay. All right. Okay, that can be put in as well mm. with that. That's mm. all right. Yeah. Um, just sorry. Um, just bear with me one minute. One of the clerks, it's John, wants to ask something. Do you want to reverse a bit about negotiating tactics? Um, yeah, Sean is saying, Kelly, do you want to remove the part about the negotiating tactic? Yeah, I think that would be better too, because um, I think all departments do this, where they put in what they're what they need, and then you know there is a bit of bartering happens. Can we change it? Maybe the, the committee was advised or informed it was not a negotiating tactic, because mm. I think the officials laid that out, did they? Yeah, you got. Uh, would you be happy with what Andy's proposal there? That the committee were advised. That this was I don't think that because they did say it. We'll, we'll say that we asked it. Yeah, well, that's true. That is true, Mark. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just looking at the the clerks here to see if they've got that straight in their head what we're asking for. Do you want and, me to write that the the committee asked was it a negotiating tactic and the department advised that it wasn't? Yes. Does that sound fair enough? Can you hear Mark and Kelly there who brought that the, in? The committee su suggested or pondered yeah. <laughs> as to whether this was a, a negotiating tactic to extract more funds from the executive. The officials assured but, them that it was not. Okay, right. Yes. Words to that effect. That will do. That's grand. Yeah. I'm happy enough with that. Everybody content with that that we move on? Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you happy that Hold that, that, that are you happy that that has changed and just sent on? Yep. Again, are you happy yeah. that those changes are made and sent on to the Department yeah. of Finance, or do you want this brought back again? I know the Department of Finance are um, keen to get have, this. We have an extra week if we need it. Yeah. Advised. Members happy enough that those changes are made and sent on? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, then can I ask members to turn to page 40 of their meeting pack where we've got a departmental response to queries on the review of charity regulations in Northern Ireland and legislation to amend the Charities Act 2008. The Minister has now appointed the expert panel for the review of charity legislation which commenced work on the 25th of January 2021 and it is uh, still anticipated that the bill would be introduced to the Assembly by Easter 2021, which is not too far away. Um, members, any comments are content to note that at present? Andy? Content. Sorry, Andy. Our declaring interest as a charity trustee chair. Not a problem. Thanks. Okay, members content with that, yes? Content. Okay, thank you very much. Then can I ask members if they could turn to page 42? Um, where we have a departmental update on the sign language COVID-19 support fund. Um, the reply provides information on the efficiency of the application process, subscription levels to the scheme, the number of first-time applicants, the demographic of applicants and the geographic breakdown. Um, members, any comments? Are they content to note that also? Content? Content. Thank you. Okay, members, can I then ask you to turn to page 45 of your meeting pack? You have a departmental response 
um, to the queries on the COVID-19 heating payment scheme. Um, given the dates, the letter confirmed that payments were to have been made to those people identified when the scheme was developed by the end of last week, which is within the time frame originally proposed. The Minister states that officials were asked to explore all potential options for expanding this scheme and have been informed that any further widening of the scope beyond the inclusion of recipients of overlapping benefits such as war pensions would not be deliverable in this current financial year. And lastly, where an individual who has a pending application or appeal which is subsequently successful and makes them eligible for the payment, the COVID-19 heating payment will automatically be made to them retrospectively. Um, just ask members any comments on that. I know, Andy, this is one that you've been deeply involved in. Um, anything you want to comment on that? Yeah, just, just to clear an interest of the veteran chair in respect to the war pension stuff, it's just to see if we can write the department. I've wrote to him in uh, my individual capacity just to see if we can get a timeline. We are fast approaching the financial year end. And I'm just keen to see where, where the department are with their uh, engagement with the MOD in respect of um, getting this payment across the line to those uh, nearly 700, the minister outlined, that would be eligible or entitled to this. Okay, we can certainly ask for that. Any other comment, Kelly? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, Chair, while it looks as if we've got clarification regarding people who are awaiting an appeal, um, my concern is that this is COVID heating money that exists until the end of March. What happens if the appeal is heard in April or May or June into the next financial year? Um, I know it seems like it's quite pedantic, but it is important that appeals are taking a very long time to happen, um, upwards of a year and more. Um, it's just if I don't want someone to miss out um, just because the appeal service has taken a bit of time to get to them. Um, I think I would like clarification. Does this roll forward into future financial years? Yeah, I think you're right there. I know that they have said that they will automatically be paid retrospectively, um, but you're quite right. Some people are waiting many, many months for their appeals to be heard, so we need just clarification on that, that if the appeal was lodged before or if they were they were um, within the within the, the qualifying period, um, and we're waiting on their appeal, then it needs to be carried on for however long that appeal takes. So yes, we can ask for that clarification as well. Are members happy enough then with those two proposals um, going forward on that issue? Yeah. Okay. Um, let me just check. Where am I now? Okay. Page eight. Okay, page eight. <laughs> Members, um, then again, can I ask you to turn to page 47, where we've got a departmental response to queries on sports organisations losing income during the COVID period. Members, this previous departmental response has been put back in your pack for further consideration by committee, as we recently wrote to the department on the issues. Um, we have been asked to re uh, reconsider this response which they feel addresses all of our queries. The response highlights that the Sports Sustainability Fund was open to recognise to recognize sports governing bodies and their affiliated clubs and entities. The fund recognised that hospitality is an important income stream for many sports clubs. However, a separately constituted social club was not eligible to this scheme. Such social clubs which were associated with or affiliated to sports clubs but which were legally separate and managed independently were eligible through the Department of Finance LRS scheme. Um, members, I know this just it seems to be an on running, an ongoing story that we have, um, and we're, I'm still constantly getting contacted. Um, I got contacted again yesterday by a Europe's bowling club just off the Crumlin Road um, who had applied to the LRS scheme through the Department of 
Department of Finance had received an email on the 22nd of December to say they were successful, and then received an email again from uh, to do with LRS on the 19th of January to say, actually, no, you're not successful, which left it too late for them to apply for the, the, the Sports Sustainability Fund. Um, I think we're going to have more of this coming through. I've also been made aware of other clubs that did receive the LRS are now being told they need to pay they will have to pay the money back because they should have applied to the Sports Sustainability Fund and didn't because they'd received the money from LRS scheme. So this has turned into a bit of a nightmare for many clubs. I, I spoke again to one yesterday who had just paid an electric bill of, of eleven hundred pounds out of money from from nowhere. They're having to go to their membership for money to pay for bills now in order to, to the, the club still have you know electricity and various fees they still have to pay so members i just want any comments for that i'm not content to note this i think we need to have a briefing um from uh, from the department the scheme is now closed we need to know how many sports clubs were successful um, who they were affiliated to, were there, were there better governing bodies than other that were advising their sports clubs? I don't know. Um, I'm just not happy to leave this because uh, I do. I, we will hear over the coming weeks as, as people who have even applied for the Sports Sustainability Fund will hear back maybe to say they weren't successful. Um, so, any other comments on this? Andy, you had your hand up. Yeah, Chair, similar to yourself, I've been contacted by quite a number of uh, sports clubs in relation to this, and I think you, uh, you're you very reserved in your comments there. I would go further and say that this has been an absolute farce, Chair. Um, we all know the, the mirage of different uh, funding streams are very difficult and complicated to, to navigate, and I don't see why there couldn't uh, be a workaround in respect to LRSS for many of these clubs here. They desperately need the money. It's been highlighted repeatedly that many of these clubs face the risk of going to the wall um, due to the incompetence here. This, this, this needs to be resolved. It really does. Um, I'm not content with the response we've, we've got either. Okay, any other members want to make comment on this? Okay, members then, moving forward, I, I think we need to get a departmental briefing on this. Um, and, and certainly just to, I'd said it a number of weeks ago that this needs to, uh, this needs to stop and we need to close the loopholes here. Um, so I'm getting looked at by the committee clerk. So I am. It's, it's, uh, we'll be seeking written briefings at the moment oh, sorry, on, all, yeah. on all these things. Yes. Uh, we will seek a, re a written briefing, I think, to begin with, though I do still think this is essential business. I, I mean, I know we're only allowed to do essential business. This is COVID-related. This is now. This is clubs that are going to the wall right now. So I think this is essential business. So I'd rather have an oral briefing and okay. members are in agreement yeah. um, to that. Yeah. Sorry, Kelly, you want to come in? Yeah, um, we all will have seen the, the Department of Finance budget statement um, that there is money there that can be drawn down and he has highlighted that ministers should be looking for money to deal with those who have not yet received funding through COVID emergency reasons or for COVID emergency reasons. I think we should be pushing the department to ask them what they are doing to bid for money for these types of organisations. Okay. Yeah, we can also ask that as well. Um, members, I just and I, I think we need to have the department in sooner rather than later on this because these clubs are really are very very worried um, that they will not they'll not be there should when COVID does come to an end to actually open up and I know certainly that bowling club I spoke to yesterday the bowling club was only survivable by the the, the, the sports club attached to it and um, you know they wouldn't survive without it. 
Um, so I don't even know if I used a proper word there. But anyway, so members agreed we get the department in sooner rather than later to give us a full briefing on this. Andy, you want to come back yeah, on that? Yeah, just a quick supplementary, Chair. Um, just, just an example that you've highlighted. I'm sure there are many like that, that maybe will fall through the gap or will get a notification from Sports Sustainability that they're not eligible. And it'd be absolutely unforgivable that if we're handing money back to Treasury uh, and these, these clubs do not get the support that they need. So absolutely, I think we need to get a better understanding of timelines here. Uh, and what workaround can be achieved in the remaining uh, amount of weeks that we have before the financial year end. Okay, members, um, happy enough with those proposals, and we can move on, yes? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Then can I ask you to turn to page 49 of your meeting pack, and we'll have a departmental letter in relation to the Social Inclusion Strategies Ministerial Steering Group. The Minister has decided to postpone the first meeting of the Ministerial Steering Group from the 10th of February to the 14th of April. Um, this will provide time for full consideration of the expert advisory panel's recommendations by the, stra the strategy co-design group, cross-departmental working groups and other interested parties and will allow the department to bring well-developed proposals for consideration. Again, members, any comment on this? Are they content to note at this stage? Content? Content. Okay, thank you. All right, members. Um, uh, just want to, if we could just put a pause there for a few moments, um, just to prepare for our next witness. Um, thank you. Okay, members, we're going to move on to agenda item six, which is a briefing on the licensing and registration of clubs amendment bill from the Federation of Small Business. Members, you'll find this at page 55 of your meeting pack. And can I then welcome to the meeting Roger Pollan and Neil Hutchinson. Um, Roger, I think that you're going to begin your briefing. Can I ask then that you stick to your time frame of five to ten minutes um, uh, to brief us and then we'll want to come in with questions. So you're both very, very welcome to the meeting today. You want to go ahead? Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, very uh, pleased to be here. Uh, so thanks for the opportunity and thanks also for the interest that you're taking in this subject. Your support is uh, welcome and valuable. Um, I know you're taking evidence from industry sector specialists, which means you're getting many quality inputs. We aim to complement rather than repeat those contributions. So to put our input in context, I'd like to take a moment just to explain why businesses join FSB and our locus in this area before taking your questions. So unlike most business groups, it's the business owner who joins FSB rather than the business. And we have around 6,000 members here in Northern Ireland alone, with many of them owning more than one business. We're a not-for-profit organisation. We're owned by our members to support our members. And there are two main reasons that they join us. The first is for the policy and lobbying work that we do on behalf of all self-employed people and SMEs. That policy work is rigorous. It starts with our policy unit, which Tina McKenzie chairs, and which features highly respected members from across a wide range of sectors and demo demographics to sector-specific industry advisory panels, and then we survey our members, we conduct focus groups and so on. And all of that is supported then by our policy team here in Northern Ireland, which Neil heads up, uh, as well as colleagues right across the organisation. The second reason business owners join us is because of the huge range of member services we provide. And key amongst these are the employment, taxation and legal helplines that we operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week with indemnity. Now these are hugely valuable and unrivaled services, and the 24-7 nature is particularly valuable and of relevance to our members in the retail and hospitality sectors, whose work and business challenges very often lie outside of the standard working week. 
So we've a great many members here in the hospitality sector itself, but we also have many here in the associated supply chains, and we have members in food and alcohol production and much more. In fact, from farm to processor, haulier to marketeer, equipment manufacturer to installer and service agent, construction and fit-out services to contract cleaning, cafe to restaurant to hotel to brewery to distillery, we have members in all aspects of not just the hospitality industry, but that vast and complicated tapestry of businesses that are interwoven with it. We're often quoted as highlighting that small businesses employ more people in Northern Ireland than all large businesses and the entire public sector combined. And the reason we quote that fact is because those businesses are the lifeblood of every community and every constituency. I think it's fair to say that few people realised until the past 12 months just how interconnected all of these aspects of the economy are, how closure of one part can cripple another. If the hotel is forced to close, the food supply chain can't find a new market quickly enough to avoid massive waste and loss. So our contributions to this discussion are framed within the context of having a great many businesses who play key roles in tourism, hospitality, retail and much more, and who are all affected by the regulatory and legislative frameworks that are placed around the licensed sector. The legislative reform has been needed for a very long time. Its process and progress have been unsteady and halting, but when the Assembly and Executive first started to recognise the need for change and to engage with the sector, we were living in different times with a buoyant and burgeoning tourism economy, with confident and successful production and hospitality sectors, winning awards and recognition of customers from far and wide. If reform was needed then, when the industry and the associated economy were thriving, the need now, as we've seen many lifetimes of work smashed by the coronavirus and our societal response to it, is magnified tenfold. Now, earlier in the meeting, Mr. Durkin quoted Lewis Carroll, so with your indulgence, may I draw on a quote from William Shakespeare, just to draw this to a close, who said, uh, I will give all my fame for a pot of ale and safety. So your support in letting us achieve both of those objectives in a more modern and responsive licensed environment is crucial, and I hope that we can help you by sharing our members' thoughts and concerns, and then Neil can lead you through some of the other reflections that we've gathered from members along the way. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roger, and um, thank you for setting the tone um, very well for, for this evidence session. And we do absolutely understand the pressures that many of your members are under. Um, and if, if, if we can in some way help um, through this bill um, to assist those members in, in going forward, we certainly do want to be part of that. Um, I just want to ask you a couple of questions in relation to some of the responses um, to the consultation that you put in. Um, one of them was to do with the uh, issue around major events, and you, your response seemed to indicate that you did not feel there was sufficient information on the parameters around to define a major event. Do you feel that's still the case, or more detail needs to be put into the bill? And then I also want to ask you around uh, the issue of aligning liquor and entertainment licences. Um, the Federation's response to the Department's consultation seemed to indicate you did not wish to see a change in the law in that regard. Um, Cass, is that still the case? I'm going to ask Neil to come in on these specifics, if, if I may, please. Yeah. Go ahead and pause me for FSB and yeah. Northern No problem. Uh, good, good morning, Chair. Good morning, uh, members. Uh, Chair, but it seems to be okay uh, for now. Um, we asked four points in the uh, the consultation response. We did feel that there was a slight lack of information at that time. Um, there was a separate uh, consultation done prior to the open 
in 2019 um, because they realized, I think uh, officials realized that there's a potential hole there uh, on the Sunday of the four day event, uh, which was the right thing to do. So we just for members uh, uh, benefit, uh, we, we asked what exactly a special event is or could be, uh, why notable events held outside of NI could not be considered, uh, for, exact, for example, sports teams playing abroad, um, how is a special event designated by the department, uh, and which businesses may uh, sort of gain or lose out as a consequence. And I suppose at that time, because it was um, a speedy process, let's say, we just generally wanted to find out more information and couldn't uh, make a qualified um, ju judgment. Uh, we felt that at that time, uh, we feel that that's uh, been rectified uh, now, uh, to your first point. And the second point, uh, I believe, was on uh, the alignment of the uh, entertainment licenses. Um, it still remains the case that we um, we, we don't wish to see a, a change um, uh, in, in that respect, Chair, if that's uh, the, sort, it's the short way of putting it across. Okay, because I, I know we have the Law Society coming up uh, later on in our briefing and they have a few issues around that as well. So it was just to get your members' response on that. Um, the other thing I just want to quickly ask you before I bring members in, and can I ask members if they could indicate now, um, it's to do with the response to do with um, small producers to offer consumption of product samples and product sales for off-site consumption. Um, would you support that? Do you absolutely support, I imagine, I, I think the, the small producers being able to sell their products um, on their premises and online and uh, as well. The issue then is to do with um, the, the like of having a, a special license um, for, for people to uh, maybe the likes of a tap room. Um, just what is your, your Federation's members' um, opinion on that? Well, I suppose if I kick off first on that is that um, our response was very much uh, looking for the capacity for those uh, producers to do off sales. And we, we tend to try and reflect what our members are telling us so that we're, we're acting as a conduit for, the, for their voices. And we have a, a huge footprint within uh, events such as the Balmoral Show. And a lot of producers there were telling us that they were, were very much hampered by the inability to let people taste the product and then buy the product for consumption off premises and that they find this wherever they produced. That was the, the real appetite they were expressing. I have to say there wasn't uh, expressed to us the appetite to take it further and develop tap rooms. I think that there's there's a lot of merit in that and I, I've seen some of the evidence has been led on this. Uh, I think it's very interesting, but it's not something that has come to us from our membership. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of potential unintended consequences that would need to be considered before you maybe uh, explore into that area so far. So the pressure we were feeling was just to uh, relax things sufficiently to allow uh, people who had shown an interest in the product to buy it for consumption uh, at, in, in their own premises at their own time, uh, not necessarily to go further than that. But it's not, definitely not to say we're, we would be against that, but we don't have an evidence base yet to, to take us into that part of, of uh, the advocacy of it. Okay, yeah, well, if I could just, yeah, just, just build on that, but if I could just build on that slightly, uh, uh, Chair, um, we, we noted it's very interesting when you read the, um, the departmental summaries of consultations, and um, we certainly noted then and reflected quite a bit on the, the taproom element um, of those that, that wanted a, a new license, a 13th license, if you like, uh, the producer's license, which was rightfully sort of uh, placed into the bill. Um, there were 780 comments made uh, and the department noted that four out of uh, five of those comments 
um, were, were in particularly for um, uh, this license uh, and they, they noted the taproom element within it. Uh, the department did not uh, outline just how many of those 780 um, wished for the, the taproom element. Uh, and so we find ourselves wondering just how, how much of a, um, a want it would be. And we certainly are sympathetic to it as, as Rogers outlined. Um, also noted that um, in uh, the laying of the, 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 the bill in the second stage that, that members, uh, Ms. Armstrong and, and Mr. Durkin, um, noted it as well, and perhaps they would like to discuss uh, it in a little bit more detail. Okay, thank you. That I mean, we have heard evidence, very strong evidence, and very good yeah. evidence for and against. Um, so it will be something that the committee will 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 have to will have to deliberate on whenever we come to that stage. Like, thank you for that. Um, can I then? Um, I've only at the minute, I only have Kelly's hand up who wants to ask questions. So can I ask members again? If you want to ask, please. Can you signify, Robin? Okay. So can I go to Kelly first, please? Thank you very much, Roger. Good to see you again. Um, and thank you very much, Neil. Um, I want to go first of all to your comments on the deliveries of alcohol. Um, and thank you for bringing it up because um, it, it's quite stark. Um, and I have to declare an interest that outside of COVID, I have a 17-year-old who works in a bar and at this stage would be allowed on behalf of her employer to accept deliveries of alcohol for the, the bar restaurant that she works in but under the new proposals wouldn't be and as you have highlighted this is has a difficulty with regards to employment law um, so thank you for that um, it's something that, that we certainly need to take into consideration uh, given the fact that we also know as, a, as the communities committee the number of, of young people who work in hospitality to deny them access to part of their job um, is, is quite difficult and as you've rightly pointed out health and safety require employers to have due consideration for under 18 so thank you for that um, you know what your, your issues with regards to special events duly noted and questions well made um, but I just wanted to tease out with you the advertising code of practice um, where you've said that um, you think that instead of banning advertising in and around the area or, or for shops um, that you would prefer to see a code of practice. Who do you see managing that code? Um, would that be statutory or would that be um, something within the industry? How would you consider that? Yeah, so um, at, at the time, um, we were trying to think of ways in which you could, again, um, build on the approach that's taken within the industry. And I, I think uh, at a previous evidence session, um, a member from the NI um, Drinks Industry Group noted that uh, it's on the, the industry is on its third iteration um, of a sort of a code, and one of the questions within this bill is around um, the sort of departmental approval or, or stamp or statutory uh, approval there. And so, um, having spoken to sort of experts in the industry and some members, we felt that the code and that way of working in order to build a sense of responsibility, which, to be honest, is probably working to rule out the exception rather than the norm. We felt that that was um, the, the, the way in which we would um, perhaps tease that area out a bit further, noting that, yeah, um, the, the, the public health element of what we're trying to do here and the balance. So that was the reason we came to the Code of Conduct. That's part A. Part, part B, in terms of who would manage it, I, I mean, we, we feel that it probably sits within, um, I mean, Probably within the department as is, um, we if we haven't thought about it at that time, uh, Ms. Armstrong. Um, but it's a, it's a natural place, uh, and in our response, we said that 
the department itself could could help to draw up uh, the department for further discussion. So I think really we got to a stage where yes to a code. Um, the bill itself has gone further than that, uh, and we note that there's some restrictions and so on and so forth. That's not what we proposed at that time, and we would we would stick with that. Um, so that's what we have. Thank you very much for that, Neil. Um, I think that we're. I'm not going to put words in anybody else's mouth, but we have heard from others. Um, you know that. The sector, when you talk about the sale of alcohol, um, the sector is so widespread. How could you have the same code for a shop, um, a corner shop um, or a garage as you would have for a big hotel? No, thank you for that. On the local producers, I've noted that you've said, and rightly so, you know, if the local producer wishes to have a tap room, then they need to have a license. And that you've said that it should be comparable in costs. I think that's the way I've read it, comparable in costs to another license of type. So if somebody wanted to run a bar, then they should pay for a bar license. The amount has me a little bit confused because so far all I've seen is that the amount through court for a license is quite minimal, but the amounts that are often quoted for licenses is due to um, the private negotiations that goes on. So would you be happy enough if, if it came down to it that there was a proposal for a local producer's license that was the same statutory cost as any bar. Now we can do nothing about the surrender um, principle and, and the way that negotiations happen with the costs of bar licenses, but the, the legal, you know, how the cost through court, that that um, price should be about the same. Um, just consider that. Uh, While Neil's ref uh, reflecting on that, I suppose if I just, just put some of the considerations we've had around this is that you, you really don't want to have barriers to, to uh, to economic activity and you don't want to stifle innovation and so on just because you've got bureaucratic systems but there is also a sort of silt that has built up that has meant that, that um, license values have become a part of the, the sort of capital assets of a sector which has now just seen a colossal damage done to it over the past year so you start to think well the unintended consequences of changing and, and, uh, and freeing this up could be huge. So I think we just need to be very careful about what those are and how we go about mitigating them. But I mean, it, it's interesting that the, the last real piece of licensing work was done, I think in 1996. Uh, so it predates the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. The population of Northern Ireland has swelled by a quarter of a million in that time. And yet we're stuck with a, a, a static system uh, of a, a finite number of licenses. So somewhere in the middle of all that, we need to find a way of responding to, to what society and markets and the economy wants, but not doing damage to people uh, through unintended consequences. I know that sounds like sort of dancing on the head of a pin and trying not to offend anybody, uh, but it's, it's, it's a bit more thoughtful than that. I think we, we genuinely need to consider people who have uh, invested and have bought assets um, that we don't suddenly just see the, the state do something that very quickly just um, removes the value of those assets without adequate compensation. So I think it's a really interesting area. We're very supportive of the spirit, but cautious about the, the, the method to get there. Neil, do you want to, to add to that? Yeah, um, I probably have a, a question just for clarification, first of all. Um, in the event that there's um, a producer's license, are you, are you saying that um, if there was an, an amendment laid or, or an additional element that allowed for a tap room uh, form of license or for consumption on site. Are you asking then if the cost of that should be similar to, to what exists through the courts? Is that the question? Yeah. 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 Um, so we haven't gone as far as to endorse the, the tap room element, as you know, 
Um, if it got to that stage, uh, it appears appropriate that you would say, apply the same principle. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fully expecting that a tap room. Well, I, I, I'm fully expecting this. This hasn't been teased out yet uh, with the committee that a tap room would not be the same as a pub. Um, for instance, it would be tied to a producer's premises and so on. So it would be a completely different. You couldn't just go and set up set up a tap room anywhere, um, yeah. and that hopefully would take that competitive element away from a, from the pub experience um, that we all miss dearly. Um, but um, yeah, no, I, it's just to make sure that as far as the legal parameters of government is concerned, there is a cost for a license. And the only one that we have control over is the one that is in the courts and through the legal processes, what happens on the bidding that happens to licenses outside of that, as you have said, because of the limited number of licenses in Northern Ireland has grown some licenses to extraordinary costs and is a barrier to the market. But thank you very much, folks. Really appreciate that. You've certainly um, opened my eyes to some elements that we do need to consider, especially with the equal treatment of those 16 and 17-year-olds um, who are working in the industry and, and limiting their employment opportunities, actually. But thank you very much. OK. Thank you, thank you Kelly. Um, I have Robin then waiting to come in. Members, just to inform you, my screen has gone here again, so I don't know who is waiting and who isn't, so I will go to members individually after Robin. So, Robin, go ahead. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you, FSB, for coming along. And, indeed, thank you, FSB, for all the work that they do throughout the year on behalf of that very important sector, the uh, small business sector in Northern Ireland and yeah, it is very much undervalued, um, the work that goes in uh, there. My, my question, Chair, is just a, a very simple uh, question about one aspect. Uh, but I do, I do agree with uh, Roger uh, earlier in his comments about we don't want barriers to economic activity or economic prosperity, nor do we want protocols to prevent economic activity and, and prosperity. Can I just ask... Uh, Roger, one area that you have left blank, and that is the removal of off-sales. Uh, in terms of your answer, well, there is no answer. Do you think alcohol drinks which are bought before 11 p.m. should be allowed to be removed from the premises between 11 and 1? You haven't answered either yes or no, nor offered any explanation uh, to that. Maybe want to comment on on why that is. I suppose the, the first answer is because uh, again coming back to trying to reflect what our members are telling us, they didn't. And thank you for your your kind words uh, about the, the work FSB does for its members. Um, but I think that we haven't uh, any particular steer coming from the members to qualify us to make an answer in that section. I think it comes back to the overriding principle has to be what are you trying to achieve in life, and then how do you go about achieving it. And it didn't seem to, to us in, in, in being asked that question that there was uh, something that we could reasonably add to it. Uh, if there are issues to do with policing or uh, order uh, and so on like that, then that's, that's something that needs to be considered. And you consider, well, how do you address what those issues are? If there's no issue, then why should there be a barrier to that sort of trade? I think that's the sort of, uh, dare I say, slightly libertarian approach to it that, that probably is, is the right way to go in this, but we didn't feel we had a mandate from the members to, to input to that. Neil, is that a fair summary of where, where we got to there? Yeah, that was the, that was the only uh, one that we 
uh, we didn't we didn't mention, um, and, and that's exactly the reason why. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you, Robin. Um, members, as I said, I can't see who now wants to ask questions, so I'm just going to go individually to members on startups. So, can I ask you, Mark, first? Mark, have you any comment or, or content at the moment? Thank you, Chair, and thanks to Roger and Neil. I had my hand up and then I took it down for scale for stopping on the two things that, that I had moved it down with the code of practice. And then the other one on the surrender principle. I think in, in response, Roger, you said that you felt like you, or you feared that you sounded like you might be dancing on, on the head of a pin. Well, well, welcome to our world. This is a really and I think we identified pretty early that this particular issue around tap rooms was going to be a difficult nut uh, for us to, to crack. I think it's, it's imperative that, that we do everything we can to encourage and grow new businesses, future members of, you, of yours, mm -hmm. uh, as well as protect uh, the interests of, of current ones. And it is a very difficult uh, balance to, to strike. But uh, thank you for your contribution. It's been, been most useful in our deliberations. Thank you. I think, can I just, in some ways, respond to, I know it's not a question, but uh, earlier in your um, uh, session this morning, there was talk about whether there had been a bid put in really just to, to ask for more than you thought you might get, just to sort of take a bit of ground. And I suspect that in our response on the, this, uh, the producer part of this is we didn't do that. We actually said, what, what is it that our members have been asking for? Uh, and that was to have the ability to sell uh, alcohol to be taken away and consumed elsewhere afterwards. Uh, they didn't go beyond that in the hope of just taking that bit of ground, if you see what I mean. So, so what we've tried to reflect is actually what members had been telling us they wanted at that point. Um, had they known that you had an appetite to go further, we may well have uh, encouraged other responses to come in. But I think we're looking at it at that point of, of being just a, a limited relaxation uh, of the, the laws that currently stood. I think that's maybe why we haven't had the, the, uh, the evidence base coming forward that we would look to now if we were going to take things a little bit further. Okay, thank you, Roger. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, Sinead, can I ask if you have any question or are you content to move on? Hi, Sinead. Apologies, sir. No, content to note. Thank you. Thank you, Sinead. Then can I move then to Alex? Alex, have you any comment or question? Are content to move on? No, just a quickie. Okay. Um, thank you very much for your presentation and for all the work that you do out in the business community. Um, could I just ask you, um, is there any concerns you have with the bill at all? Yeah, we, we um, broadly supported and, and we, again, we, we asked ourselves this question, uh, uh, Mr. Easton, um, from an object, objective point of view, and there's some elements that we perhaps tweak, for example, uh, around the definition of um, uh, entertainment. So self-employed DJ being able to um, do what they do uh, and licensing uh, law apply, that sort of thing, we, we would tweak. Um, we also, you'll note in our consultation response, uh, tackled uh, the, the loyalty scheme side of things uh, as well. Again, we were our preference was to um, ensure that, that our members or the, the producer or, or whoever's in the industry could have the choice to act responsibly and that could be placed properly. 
Um, but broadly, um, in, in, in answer to our internal question of, of that nature, we said, well, where are we now? Where will this take us? And will that give uh, the industry here the opportunity to grow into itself that bit more uh, in the coming years? And to that, it was a definitive yes. Uh, and so broadly, that's why we're supporting it in, in that sense. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Alex, I just want to ask then a supplementary up the back of Alex then about the loyalty scheme. Can you just give us a, a little bit more um, information on your views around that? Yeah, so we we um, we, we, we haven't spoken to, to members um, that there is certainly a, an appetite to be able to continue that in certain respects. And we, we certainly note the, the, the public health element uh, and the fact that that could be open to uh, abuse, as it were, um, in the off chance. Uh, and so we took a decision, um, again, driven by the members, that um, that, that, that should uh, be allowed to continue. Uh, and it's, it's as simple as that. And we know that others within uh, the industry as well support that, that view. Yeah, and again, just to, again to ask back on that, um, if, if the bill goes ahead as is around the loyalty scheme, um, what, what sort of effects would that have on your members? Um, well, it's, it's the potential of those that, that do uh, run uh, a loyalty scheme um, is, is one, but also the potential. We always look to the potential for innovation, as it were. And it's not that you necessarily innovate around um, solely the, the selling of alcohol, but it's the combination of local producers um, uh, interacting with um, for example, a, a, a license uh, premise, and then combining food uh, and, and local produce. We, we thought that there was quite a lot of opportunity still to go, uh, for example, in, in that space. And ivory food, of course, is, is, is a big thing in NI. So it was the potential uh, is where we focused our um, sort of attention on. In terms of the impact, we, we don't have a solid evidence base as to how that would ripple out. Um, and that was the balance of our decision in that respect. Okay, Neil, thank you for that. Just we'll go quickly then to Karen. Do you ask Karen if she's any comments she wants to highlight or is she happy enough to move on? Thank you, Chair. Uh, Robin had asked my question around the, the off-sales, so I just want to thank Roger and Neil for attending today and for the briefing. Um, and I certainly know the excellent work that you do on representing uh, your members, so thank you so much for that. Thank you very much. Thank you. It. Thanks, Karen. Okay, um, Roger and Neil, there's no other members have indicated they want to ask any further questions. Can I, again, can I thank you um, for being part of, of this evidence gathering and for coming and briefing the committee today? Thank you very much. Can I just see, if, first of all, if Neil has anything he wants to, to add in just by way of a concluding remark? Absolutely. Um, I've, I've one final thing that I, that I did mention. Um, the, the, the pro, once this all flows through, the, the process uh, and the simplification of, of licensing law uh, and how it actually plays out on the ground is one thing that came to the fore quite a bit. So we would urge members just to keep in mind um, the, the red tape and the simplification of the process. In one of your evidence sessions, I think one of the local brewers noted that in ROI, um, one producer's license had been allocated so far and they felt that there was a, a large amount of bureaucracy, even if this uh, bill gets passed and things get, get put into process. So it was just a note that uh, things can always be improved in, in that respect, but otherwise, that's everything. Thank you. No, and thank, thank you for that. 
Go ahead. Chair, can I do, just, just add then, I suppose the final point is that I know that there's been lots of aspirational uh, targets of when, when people would hope for this bill to come in because of things within the year. And obviously, uh, Dr. McBride's uh, comments, yes, uh, in the last couple of days really, have suggested that that may be very wide of the mark. But I think nonetheless, notwithstanding what these short-term uh, targets are and, and restrictions are, really would urge a sense of urgency about getting this bill through uh, and, and actually into force. Because we, we obviously know that this assembly has, has, has got another year to run before you start breaking them to, to, to go to elections and so on like this. It's been an awfully long time in its gestation. Uh, and I just think that there's, there seems to be a, a, a current running with it now. There seems to be support for it. Uh, there's been a lot of good work done on it and support that you've brought to it and the, the attention and focus you've brought on it. We just really urge that we try and keep that momentum going as we get it in place. And then that industry, which is currently on its knees, will at least have some degree of certainty to start to plan what its next phase is, along with the hospitality and tourism sectors beyond that. No, look, thank you for that as well, Roger. I can assure you that this committee um, will not take any longer than is absolutely necessary. Um, in our scrutiny of the bill, and we're, we're, we're marching on. Actually, we've, we've, we've only a few weeks left, actually, of, of scrutiny now, um, before we move on to deliberations. So, yeah, uh, we, we will not keep it, we'll not hang on to it any longer than what we need to. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, members, we're going to move on then to agenda item seven, which is a briefing again on the licensing and registration of clubs amendment bill, and our briefing now is from Food NI. Members, you'll find this agenda item at page 92 of your meeting pack, and then can I welcome Michelle Sherlow um, to the meeting again with yourself. Michelle, are you there? I don't see Michelle on our list. Hold on. Unless she's come on under a different name. There's a let me say, just bear with me one wee minute, members, do I just check? No, we don't have. Michelle isn't on our list in our audience. I'm going to get the clerk to double check here with me. No, am I right? Okay. All right. Um, we can maybe just find out where Michelle has gone. And because the screen hasn't been up, I haven't been able to follow to see if she was in earlier and left. Members, just take your ease a wee moment. So we try and find out where we are with this. And we haven't got a full... Um, I know we've got Colin on the call from the Law Society for our next meeting, but we haven't got uh, Maeve in yet because it's still a bit early for them. Members, I'm just going to turn this off just so we, we clarify a few technical issues here and we'll be back with you shortly. 29. This is the North. Okay, members, um, we're going to then move to agenda item 7, and that is a, a briefing on the licensing and registration of clubs. Amendment bill from Food NI. Um, can I welcome then Michelle Sherlow to the meeting? Um, Michelle, you're very welcome with us today. Can I ask you then if you want to give us a, a, a quick brief and then we'll, members will ask some questions. You've got around five to ten minutes um, for your briefing, so if you want to go ahead, and you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Sharon. You can hear me okay? Yes, we can. Yeah, great. Um, yes, I'm Michelle from Food NI. It probably would have been Food and Drink NI, but when we were starting up, there really weren't any um, drinks companies. Sorry. Um, so we started in 2008, and our aim is to enhance the reputation of food and drink from Northern Ireland. Um, and we really want to do that through high quality, um, but it has to be accessible. 
So our members are really both producers, and you've heard from many of them on this committee, but also hotels and restaurants that stock local drinks. Um, and since we were last here in November 2016, the good news is Northern Ireland won world's best food destination at International Travel and Tourism Awards in London, which has been a, a great boost. And the drinks companies just do keep on winning awards nationally and internationally, but we really need a bill that is fit for the future. So may I ask, could I just take the paper as read? Um, I wanted to add a few more observations, really. Um, I suppose sustainability, health and the environment were all key influences in the market prior to the pandemic. Um, but since the pandemic, that change has really accelerated. Um, localism is very much on the rise. And um, I think as I put in my briefing paper, even the UN have advised consumers to support food systems that have shorter, fairer and cleaner supply chains. In the short term, tourism recovery and economic recovery is going to be dependent on local markets and experiential tourism is going to be key. And people want to be able to meet producers. Uh, they want to understand the story behind the process. They want to experiment with flavors and have, a, I suppose, a whole um, experience with food and drink. And we really need a bill that will afford sensible consumption and sales at local quality food and drink events because Northern Ireland is building its reputation as a quality food and drink region. And just finally, um, one point I wanted to make, um, we as Food NI, we work with both producers and restaurants and um, we actually inspect uh, restaurants using our Taste of Ulster scheme. Uh, we visit about 200 of them a year and one of the criteria for being a Taste of Ulster member is uh, using local uh, drinks. And to be honest, finding a range of local drinks is, is a really a rarity. Um, and that will apply to soft drinks as much as to alcoholic drinks. Um, we find that even if the um, if they will even if the chef knows about them and they want to stock them, um, they are frequently offered incentives such as uh, free stock of replacement produce by multiples. Now, I know that's outside the remit of this committee, but I have been listening to the sessions and I fear there's a rivalry emerging between pubs and producers and tap rooms. But there's another uh, player in this and, um, and that's the economic driver of the multiples. So in conclusion, could I just say, um, please can you change these laws so that they are fit for the current and the future environment. And thank you for the opportunity to present. Thank you, Michelle. I, I, I'll kind of start where you left off there, if you don't mind to do with, um, I mean, we have heard from a, a vast mixture of, of people within the industry from various parts of the industry. And there does appear to be a little bit of friction um, between the local producers and um, then the, those uh, large breweries. Um, and I know you had said in the, the, that they're anti-competitive um, in your paper. Um, do you think that there is somewhere within this bill that we can look at that issue and, and put something in there um, just, to, just to make it more of an open competition? 
and to give those small breweries that that chance of being able to be part of of that larger uh, larger selling um, product. I think there is. I think if they could have the opportunity to, um, well, first of all, the opportunity to raise awareness through sampling and tours on site would be a big help, um, a massive help, and that would raise awareness. Um, I suppose the one thing that I don't see much of is um, upselling, um, and, and that's partly awareness and partly accessibility. Um, and as I said, you know, people have been, people in Northern Ireland, food and drink are very inventive and very creative and they've not just produced alcohol but they've produced tonic waters and soft drinks to a high standard um, and you would find there would be not resistance actually from the pubs but from the suppliers to the pubs to letting those those in. Um, I, would like, I would like to see a common ground that would bring people together and I think it's it would be good to avoid that rivalry. I don't think all pubs are going to want to stock these products because they're very expensive, they're premium, but um, you know the top end of the market should be encouraged at this stage to include them. And what about our supermarkets as well? I know I, the, one of the supermarkets that I go to, um, they do a great range of craft, craft beers and craft ciders in it. Mm -hmm. fantastic range um, but you'll maybe only find two or three that are Northern Ireland based the rest are all from the remainder of the, of the United Kingdom which is really disappointing um, when, mm -hmm. whenever we, the, we have these large um, multinational supermarkets um, who are not supporting the local economy here by you know is there anything again on that front that we could fit in somewhere or look at? Well I, I agree with you um, and the, the problem with the pandemic is that the supermarkets are rationalising ranges, which is going to make it more difficult for people, you know, for local producers, local ciders and local beers and spirits to get in. What we have seen has been a, um, a really interesting growth in home delivery and people going into, you know, box games that include, you know, meat, vegetables, local produce, but even at the minute they can't include alcohol. And I'm not, um, again, I think that could be, if, if the producers had a way of, you know, a producer's license that allowed them to sell, then you could quite, you know, sensibly uh, leap piggyback on those schemes. Um, because I do think in retail that there will be more, as you have seen with Amazon and the likes, there's going to be more home deliveries and there's going to be more sign up for a high quality ready meal delivered to your house prepared by a chef um, locally. No, and I do, I have seen that and we do have um, many restaurants who have diversified over over the last months who have been providing that very much um, meal. I mean, you have the perfect example, you have Valentine's weekend this week, there will be many restaurants that will be delivering meals um, to many homes and there maybe in, if it was in their restaurant, they'd be doing wine pairing or whatever else with with uh, with their, those meals. So why should they not be able to do the same um, whenever you're... So yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And it just brings something else that we need to look at um, if we can.
in this bill. I want to then move to another issue. I don't know if you heard um, the witness session last week with Copeland Distillery and the issues that they had when it came to occasional licences, and very much they were saying to us that there there is uh, you know um, major differences depending on which um, uh, police district you might be in or even council area you might be in as to whether you receive that occasional licence. So we just want to talk a little bit more about that. You'd also mentioned about, um, and I know myself, uh, any time that there's a festival even being held by our local council in my own area, they have to go to the, the, the pub, the local pub, and ask them, to, can we use our, your licence to run a festival or to run a, an event in the, in, our, in the local town or village? So it's just if we could just go into both those, those in a bit more detail and how we could make that easier. Um, within this bill for those specific events and occasional licences as well um, uh, to, to take place that are uniform and across the board and it doesn't, you know, it's not irrespective of, of whether you live in Belfast, Bangor or Bambridge, you know? Well, just, I would, I would concur that there um, unfortunately is that variation by district, um, which is why it might be sensible to have some somebody looking after this that has a Northern Ireland wide reach. I mean, we find, a, a sorry for the pun, but we find a different appetite in councils even for food, high quality food and drink events. Some councils are very bought into it, others not so much. Um, and the good thing about it is it's rural. So you'll find that quite a lot of the rural councils actually will be more amenable to running a good high quality event. But I don't think the occasional system, sorry, the occasional license system at the minute is working. And it, I think that the evidence I gave you is a fair reflection. Um, I think that there should be a producer license where everybody has um, the ability to market up to a certain level. And certainly it has to be controlled, they have to undertake the training and they have to, you know, abide by the law and that has to be, you know, every year checked. But um, it, it, at the minute, they just can't even get to market. And we've seen that at Balmoral Show. So um, Balmoral, we have a large food and drink pavilion and it isn't just about selling alcohol to the people that walk through the door. It's about selling alcohol to buyers that we bring in with Invest NI who come from GB and ROI and you know at the minute um, well over the last five years we would have had an opportunity to showcase a huge number of really high quality uh, food producers or sorry alcohol producers but they, they can't participate because they can't um, sell they can't give anything away even um, I think that for events you can get a license, you, okay, maybe you can get an occasional license to serve alcohol over the counter. But for these events, it's a bit like going to a wine tasting and, you know, you taste a range of wines, but really what you would like is a box of wine delivered to your door. Or if you were an American tourist, you know, you'd like to go home and, um, you know, then some, some, bring some cider for somebody or have some ciders delivered to your home. And at the minute, all that is prevented. And I suppose uh, the issue is that I could go to a wine tasting in my um, local uh, wine merchant, and then I could order 
but I can't go to a tasting in my local brewery, distillery or cidery. And um, so we're, we're allowing that to happen in, in wine tasting, for example, which is bottles of wine coming from all parts of the world that we're bringing in here, but yet our own homegrown um, talent and expertise, we can't do it. And it, it is, it's very, very unfair. Absolutely. Look, Michelle, I'm going to leave my question for there at the moment and I'm going to move. Um, I have Kelly who has um, signified she wants to come in. Can other members let me know if they want to come in as well? So, Kelly. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you very much, Michelle. Um, Michelle, I, I, I've heard your name spoken very highly in, in, in circles, in particular with um, my local Combert Farmers Market and Deborah Gervin down there. So thank you very much for your work in promoting local products. Um, we all know how Northern Ireland across the world is associated with brands, particular food brands. We have Bushmills, we have Tato Crisps, you know, we have Five Mile Town Cheese. There are so many of them. And the one thing that is particular to all of those, as you have highlighted, is localism. And it's the unique points that come from that. So it'll come as no surprise that I would like to see the development further of our local um, producers here. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about a point that you have raised, and it's a really interesting one. And I'm thinking in particular about things like the Cumber Farmers Market. When you talk about an occasional license could be applied for by an organisation, as opposed to having to use a pub or a, a hotel's occasional license because I'm sure they have plenty of demands on those occasional licences. But I'm, I'm just quite keen to find out from your experience how that would potentially work. Um, you know, at the moment, we know that someone can go and if, if a pub or a hotel is happy to do so, they apply for occasional license because they have a license. Um, uh, how would you see that working in the future? Because it seems like quite an exciting concept to open um, opportunities for farmers markets or you know food festivals held by local communities um well look i'm i'm the i'm probably expert on the food but not on the licensing let's be honest um let's be very clear it's about promoting local it's not about bringing in um a range of other alcohol and let's take cumber farmers market and you know the Cumber Early is a product of geographic indication, and we have another product of geographic indication, which is the Armagh Bramley Apple. We have a world-class cluster of cider producers in Northern Ireland. We have cider producers that actually make cider from apple juice, and that might seem a bit um, obvious, but in fact, a lot of cider is made from flavoured flavored sugar. So, you know, what I would love to say is a... a say a society or an organisation like the Cumber Early could apply for a producer's licence that allowed them to showcase local producers uh, from Northern Ireland or from, you know, from the region, um, that then you could, something that you would be proud to bring visitors to. And my gauge of uh, an event is, would I be proud to bring a food writer here? Uh, could I lift the phone to somebody in England and say, you must come here and see this fantastic produce that we have. And at the minute, I'm stymied with that because, yes, I can take them, I have taken them to Cumber Farmers Market and they've been highly impressed, but they just don't understand why they cannot buy a bottle of beer from Bullhouse or from somewhere up the road. 
um, to them it's just unfathomable. And so, so I think something, if we could work it out, something like that that would work would be a real step forward because I think the localism and I think sustainability is going to keep on growing. Thank you very much, Michelle. Um, I, I get this completely because uh, as, as a result of something so successful as Cumber Farmers Market, there have been other markets have appeared and that ability for local producers to then go out and, and have produce and sell produce, it means then that our bakers, our bread makers, they can all go, but our drinks producers are, are limited. Um, so no, absolutely, I get that. And do you think, Michelle, just from your organisation's point of view, that limitation, does that mean that our local produce is getting a better market outside of Northern Ireland as opposed to here? Yes, we can go to Borough Market in London and take, well, we have, and we have, and we've taken 30 food and drink producers, and we've been able to, they've been able to apply for a producer's license in GB, and they've been able to sell gins, beers, ciders, right in the centre of Shoreditch in London. But, but like, I can't do it in Cumber down the road. Yeah, yeah, no, it's... it's and it's, and it's, you have to build your home market. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of time in economic development. Um, you know, you really need your home market as your stronghold, as your foundation for export. And it's unfair to ask them to try to build just an export market. And I suppose part of the reason why um, I'm so passionate about this food is that I got a chance whenever I worked in Invest NI to travel. And it, when, when you travel to another culture, what they want to do is show you their food, show you their drink. And you know we didn't do that 12 years ago. And, but we now actually have something to be so proud of and to showcase to the world. Um, as I said, we won World's Best Food Destination. We could easily do it again. Yeah. No, that's fantastic, Michelle. I don't have any other questions with you because um, it was that main point I wanted to tease out with you. But thank you so much. And thank you for your work locally with all our, our wonderful producers. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Kelly. I have no other members who um, put their hand up to say that they want to ask a question. Just I'll give you a second or two. There we go. Mark Durkin. Mark, you can go ahead and ask a question. Uh, go ahead, Mark. Right. Uh, thank you, Michelle, for coming in. That was very, uh, very, very good presentation. It's good to hear things from your perspective. You've got a, a very good and broad overview it seems, and, and sounds. Now, uh, just sort of, you, you have experience of events, of course, and I was just wondering in terms of your organisation of the, the year of food and drink in, in 2016. Can you imagine how, how that organisation, your organisation of that year of events would have or might have differed if the licensing scheme that you're now proposing had been in place? Well, it would, have, it would have fully included the drinks element. I mean, what, what we did was we themed it, uh, and it was, by the way, we worked with Tourism NI, Department of Agriculture, Invest NI, and we um, themed each month uh, by, by a different, so we had a month dedicated to dairy, a month dedicated to beef. But um, really, in effect, I think we lost out on about 10% or 15% of the producers not being able to really fully participate. I think I said in my paper that going forward, what I would love to see is a sustainable year of food and drink. Northern Ireland has now got the reputation for high quality uh, food and drink. We need to get our reputation for sustainable food and drink. And 
I believe, say we were to do it again, there would be an awful lot more experiences around uh, distilleries, cideries, breweries. One of the things that somebody in the panel mentioned was pairing foods with um, local drinks. And I can remember that some of the food writers came to Northern Ireland and were shocked that we were serving Prosecco. In fact, I think I was resoundly told off for serving Prosecco and told that if in future, you know, if you were to have like a, a celebratory meal, what you would do is you would pair each uh, course with a local drink. So in effect, we really, those people didn't really fully get a chance to participate. Yeah. Well, that would be a nice meal. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, you'd refer to the fact as, as potentially friction uh, emerging between the local producers and uh, pub owners, and sorry, it was remiss of me not to declare an interest earlier in that, in that respect. But do you feel, in my view, I'm sure the view of others, there are huge opportunities there through collaboration and closer cooperation. Yeah. You don't, do you detect any sort of appetite for that at all? I know, I know we have heard now from a couple of individual and independent bars you know, who, who have established relationships and, and they're, I suppose, leaping the dividends, they, they would mm -hmm. say, uh, for, for doing so. But, but do you think that we, or, or maybe even an organisation like your, your own, uh, could, could play a part in, in, in bringing these sectors together and helping them realise mm -hmm. uh, the, the potential that is there through working together? Yes, I... Look, whenever there's change, there's always going to be friction and there is going to be change, there is change appearing, occurring in the market and I'm very sympathetic to the, the challenges that the hospitality sector has faced, it's just been horrendous. Um, in our experience, um, you, there's, there's, there's not, not all pubs are going to want to stock high quality beers and ciders but there's maybe a top 25% or people have got an interest. And in our experience, you get so far with it, um, you do have some collaboration, and we would love to create more, but you get some collaboration going, and then something happens, like a supplier comes in and says, look, we'll, uh, if you take that out, if you take that out, we'll, we'll help you with this. Um, and now this happens to soft drinks as well, so it's not just alcohol, but we had an example where we'd done a lot of work with a soft drink company, and um, we had some local hoteliers support that company and put it onto the table, put it into the chillers. And then we had another uh, multinational come in and say, I will give you an equivalent product free of charge. Um, at events, we've also had the experience where, say for example, a large multinational is sponsoring an event. They have said to us, you cannot have any local produce for sale at that event um, which is it seems completely ridiculous when you have a multinational sort of saying that a very small cider company from Armada can't because they aren't even in many ways comparable products and I had to have a laugh um, I was listening earlier to the descriptions of the beer festival and uh, I do remember that beer festival in Belfast and watching the the long row of bearded middle-aged men in Moses sandals queuing up to buy beer. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> I'm not wearing sandals. <laughs> not wearing sandals. Um, 
and actually, you know, what they what they wanted to do, somebody said it was going to be like a library, you know, and that's that, that's what they wanted to do, and that's what they were doing. They wanted to go in and and you know sample these weird concoctions of beers made with beetroot, um, <laughs> coffee no, grinds, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> Beauty is in the eye of the beer holder. Absolutely. <laughs> and they should be allowed to do it, you know. I, I would love to be more, I would love to try and, um, you know, work with companies. If we were coming up to another year, I certainly would love to go to the, the big companies and say, look, let's see if there's a way we can do this together. But I think <laughs> legislation does need to change as well. Okay, no, thank you, Michelle. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Mark, um, I have Karen waiting to come in. I'm giving members their final warning. If you want to ask a question, let me know. Um, and can I bring Karen in, please? Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you, Michelle. Uh, it's been really, really interesting listening to yourself. And uh, I enjoy enjoyed that description there, unfortunately, for me. And now we're, we're, age, we're aging our way under the middle age category, even though we don't want to think about it. Um, it, just as I say, really interesting, your common sense suggestions and solutions around our local projects, and it's just opened my eyes. Um, I, I wouldn't have been aware of all of this before. The chair has touched a really good bit around the on-site uh, consumption, so the only thing really I, I wanted to maybe just ask, and you may have answered this already, but there is different views around um, in terms of our local breweries or tap rooms, and whether um, in terms of on-site consumption and sales, would that be just selling their own products or do you think they should be allowed to include other products as well? Thank you. Yeah, no, no I, think, I think they should be allowed to sell their own products. Um, I don't think they should be, uh, but I don't even think they would have the motivation to sell um, other products, but, you know, I could see I could see a situation where they may decide to pair with another brewery maybe once a year or a couple of times a year and do an event. But I think it's a major drawback to them not to have the ability just to smell, to sell their own products. And um, I just don't think that, as I said, I don't think they have the motivation to sell other other alcoholic products. It would be, they, they have the pride, the belief, they want to tell you the story about why they've invested their time where they get their ingredients from, why their beer is different. And I think it's, um, it's, it's a really sort of much more of a tasting experience. And I'm sure that there's ways within legislation that if they, um, they broke that parameter, that, you know, that that could be removed from them. But I just don't think they would have the motivation. Yeah, no, thank you for that, Michelle. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Karen. Okay, members, nobody else has indicated they want to ask any further questions. Michelle, can I say a very big thank you to you as well um, for being part of our evidence gathering on the bill. Um, you've raised some really good issues um, and uh, certainly we want to try our very best to support um, the, the, your members that you represent as well going forward in the bill. So thank you, Michelle. If there's anything else you want to say and finish in, feel free. Um, if not, we'll say cheerio to you. No, thank you very much for the opportunity and um, I really appreciate it and happy to help at any time. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, members, um, we're going to now move on to our last briefing on the bill for today and that's at agenda item 8 and the briefing is from the Law Society um, NI. We have with us Maeve Fisher and Colin Mitchell. 
So can I welcome you both very much to our meeting today as well. And I know that you've both been on the line there for a little while, listening in as well, which is always good. Um, so I think, I don't know, is it Maeve, is it yourself that's going to do the briefing? And just to remind you that it's only a sort of five to ten minute brief only maximum and don't feel that you need to use it all um, because there will be plenty of questions as well. So pass over to yourself. That's fine. Thank you, Chair. Um, uh, just on behalf of the Law Society of Northern Ireland, Colin and I are, are delighted to be here this morning uh, and to address you on a few of the key issues within the submission that was put forward by the Law Society. Obviously, we are looking at uh, this in a very different light. We're looking at it in, in purely the legal sense and in a neutral way. And we have listened in and read the submissions um, from many different uh, organisations and groups and individuals which have been very interesting. I'm going to touch on a couple of the points in this mission and then Colin uh, is going to touch on, on a couple of the other points and then obviously we're happy to take any questions that the committee would have. So just looking at a couple of the key points in the submission and the legal aspect of that, I would like to firstly address the major events point. So uh, obviously we had uh, a discussion group with the key licensing lawyers within Northern Ireland discussing these points um, putting forward and there were concerns raised about the fact that this power would obviously be with the department rather than the courts, which is contrary to the current position and how things would run similarly at the minute, it would probably be by way of an occasional licence. Uh, so we would be concerned about the, the lack of judicial control there um, and the things that are usually put before the court and tested before such a license would be granted. So just concerns that we would have or issues to be raised would be in terms of the license area for that event, which is usually a really key thing that's looked upon the red line, as we would call it, um, for the event and where alcohol could be sold um, and consumed. So we'd have concerns about controls over licensed areas, um, who uh, the alcohol would be sold to, and people selling that, the levels of training, um, and then also uh, what is a major event? Is there a definition for that? And again, you know, that that would be put to the department who that application is served on. Obviously, at the minute with the legislation, there are statutory people that have to be served for events. And, and we would just be looking to see sort of a clarification around all of those points. Um, another issue um, in relation to the major events uh, which I know has been discussed before, is the selling of off-sales products at those events. Um, and again, what, what can be done there, a certain clarity over the position, um, concerns about off-sales licences as they currently stand, and whether it's fair that you can sell products like that and not have that off-sales licence that has been granted and very restrictive through the courts. Um, the other matter then I just wanted to touch on uh, which I know has been very topical and discussed at length and obviously again we're looking at it in a different way as the producers licenses and the proposed new category for that um, so I've read a lot of the submissions from um, other organisations and again I know there's the issue with uh, whether it's just their own produce um, other items as well and whether it would be more like a tap room so in our discussions we were wondering um, is that going to include a subsisting license 
I, I mentioned this morning, um, cost of the application for that. So obviously there's a court service fee, but will those producers have to submit a license handover license to be able to sell their own produce? Or is it intended that that won't be the case? And certainly if they were operating as a tap room, uh, which we would be concerned might be more like a pub um, situation, again, if they wanted to operate in that way, would they have to hand a license in um, what products they'd be allowed to sell? Um, and again, just clarity around that. Um, and I'll just hand over to Colin then, who wanted to address in a couple of other points. Thank you. Colin, we can't hear you. You just double check your sound. I still can't hear Colin. This does happen occasionally, so it does. Oh dear. Okay. Colin, I don't know. Um, I take it you, you've, your volume and everything else is, you're, you're doing all the right things. We just don't happen to be able to hear you. Let it just try again, Colin. Nope. No. Still don't have Colin. Um, we do still have Mia with us, but don't have Colin. I don't know whether it's... Want to go out. You want to go out, Colin, and come back in again? Would that help? And then when I see your name come up, I'll bring you back in to the meeting again, if you want to go out and come back. Thank you. Okay, so maybe you're with us here, and I know Colin probably does have more to say. But I'm going to just I'm going to just start um, question. I'm going to just start the our, our question session anyway. Of course, yeah. And then Colin can come back in on anything he wants to say, and maybe actually some of the stuff I'm about to ask is maybe what Colin was going to talk about anyway. And it was the the issue that around the reform of Article Thirty One. Um, of the licensing yeah, order. That, that was, that that, was certainly a, a matter that Colin wanted to address. No, well, that's okay. Uh, we can wait and see if Colin comes back in and we can ask him. I just want to ask him a bit more detail around that. And then the other one you'd highlighted as well was to do with the problem with smaller stores and the, the limited advertising that was allowed. Um, and we know that Retail NI has also raised this concern with us last week. Um, so do you think that clause needs amended um, That to, for, for smaller that, that stores was, in that particular? That was just... Yeah, Chair, that was that was a concern that we had um, just on review of that, um, that obviously we are trying to look at it obviously very neutrally on behalf of the uh, the law study and looking at the, the legal element of it. But we were concerned about uh, competition there. So obviously the larger stores, you will know that they have that offering um, and so they probably won't be as negatively affected by restriction with the advertising. Um, but for smaller stores or smaller license holders that we would act for, um, that, that would be more difficult. You may not be aware that that offer is there uh, and therefore restrictions with the advertising only in store uh, may damage them and, and raise competition issues. Okay, and you know that I mean, it has been raised with us before. And I suppose that what's interesting about this witness session is you're, you're coming from this, um, or at this, from no financial um, gain in, in any change that's, that might take place. Um, so it's good to get that balance for you as well. Um, I did read in your submission you'd put on that you'd or put in it that you'd wanted to see that the, these regulations to um, 
not to be ambiguous, you know, that you wanted to see things that that are definite. We did hear earlier from, I don't know whether it was Roger or Michelle, I think it was Roger, I don't know whether it was Roger or Michelle, I think it was Roger, had said in the Republic of Ireland there has only been one application for a producer's licence because it has been so difficult to navigate the bureaucracy and the red tape. Um, how do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, that that's not something we would want either because obviously we're trying to provide advice uh, to clients and, and let them know that there's a, a process and that it can be followed through and, and obviously we would have clients frustration um, coming back to us if it, if it was very difficult to achieve so I think if the law is clear um, so for example some of those issues that we raised if, if the bill is very clear what can be achieved but obviously then I suppose it's working with everyone who goes along with that so it's uh, the people that are served with the application um, and support um, that there's clarity with, you know, police are usually served, the council's served and, and that all those groups work together, I think, to achieve um, the result is important. Uh, Chair, can you hear me now? I can hear you. I can't see you, but we can certainly hear you. <laughs> well, that's, so that's, we'll that's, that's, that's no loss, I can assure you. I know I was um, one. I'd, I'd asked Maeve there, and she said that you were going to deal with it. If you could just, uh, about the Article 31 that you'd put in it. Yeah, there's just one thing as well. Chair, yeah. there's just one thing that did come up uh, in the meeting that uh, I think we could assist with a little bit, and mm. that's occasional licences okay. as well. Yes. That's another uh, question I had down too, so yes, go okay. ahead. Just in terms of, there's, uh, whenever you apply for a licence, the court has to approve your premises as suitable, which means looking at it, having a plan, uh, making sure it's got the various statutory approvals, building control, etc. So if in your, in your ownership of those premises, you deviate from that, alter the premises, you must notify the court and get approval from the court. Now, uh, if it's a large one, you need a whole new licence, a whole new grant. If it's a small one, you go to a county court for an Article 31 uh, with your amended plans and the court approves them, hopefully. But over time, there's been some issues with that. The first issue is there's a difference in judicial interpretation as to what minor is. Uh, is it a percentage of area? Is it going outside, staying inside? There's a number of things. The second thing as well is it's not entirely clear whether such an approval has to be done before the work is carried out or after the work is carried out, i.e., is it retrospective or not? The key point there is, is that licensees may unknowingly do alterations to their premises. Uh, they go to a solicitor later on, the solicitor finds out they've done these alterations, they're not approved by the court, and therefore we have to go back to court to get those uh, alterations retrospectively approved. And hopefully a court will allow it, but sometimes they don't. And the difficulty is if that happens, a license can become void okay because you've done unauthorized alterations the in around uh in a similar fee in the renewals as well uh, you have renewals are done at five year blocks last one was 2017 next renewal will be 2022 uh, if in the middle of if you miss your renewal you uh you have a year's grace period to go with it with a fine if you don't uh, get in uh, after that year you lose your license and you have to apply for a whole new one so apart from, apart from the cost of that, the difficulty is, is that then you have to close and you can be closed for months while you get your new license and there's a knock-on effect there to the employees, let alone the business owner and everything else. And we'd suggest that perhaps uh, there should be a longer grace period. There's fines already there. You can increase those fines to make sure there's, uh, there's compliance with it. 
And the last one is, and I know this has been raised before by other people before the committee, Article 44 is a late license. You apply for a license at the court. You also apply for a number of late licenses per week. Traditionally, it was you applied for every night of the week because you didn't quite know when your licensee was going to need it. Maybe they want to do a qu occasional quiz nights on a Tuesday and things like that, okay? Uh, but what happened recently is that uh, in certain areas, it was uh, the argument was made that if you have an Article 44 for every night of the week, you have to use it for every night of the week. It's a sort of use it or lose it. Um, and that's fine. And people can then deal with having less Article 44 nights a week. But the problem is, if you say have a Friday and a Saturday, but maybe have a charity opportunity or some other opportunity on Monday or Tuesday, you can't apply for an Article 45, which is the, if you like, the few days, so that's the occasional, if you like, uh, late license, that is that the days are being increased for in this, in this uh, legislation. So if you have got an Article 44, you can't apply for an Article 45. It's a lacuna in the law uh, that, that I, we would say needs to be addressed. Uh, those are some things we think aren't in the legislation that should be dealt with. And then obviously around occasional licences, you may have some questions about those as well. No, and thank you for that, because it, it just has highlighted more issues um, again. You see the issue around the grace period. I remember dealing with a, a case in my own constituency around the grace period on the renewal of a licence. Um, there was issues around um, antisocial behaviour and various other things. So can that grace period... The grace period... Um, what exactly do you want to see when it comes to the grace period? What way, what would you like it to be written? We, we, we would say we would say it should be extended. Uh, now I don't. What happens is is that not to get too technical on it. Even if you miss one renewal, you can still apply for a new grant of a license using your subsisting license, which doesn't go which goes which doesn't go void for another five years. I'm not going to get too in the weeds of it. Okay. Uh, so, for example, if you miss the grace period, if you miss the one year's grace period by two or three months, uh, then all of a sudden you're applying for a new grant of a license. But if you miss the grace period by five years, you're applying for a new grant of a license anyway. Yeah. So we don't see why the grace period couldn't be for a longer period of time and uh, with suitable fines on it. It would, that would just, wouldn't pick up all of them. We'll pick up a number of uh, of, of licensees that go uh, that, that that make this mistake, if you like, and it doesn't just happen with licensees, if you like, just missing it. You know, because it's, one thing that does happen quite often is that because of set period, somebody might somebody might have taken over a license in 2019, and they hear the five year renewal, but they don't realise the renewal period is 2022, and we mistakes like that can come in. And it's just, it's not intentional. Nobody's intending not to renew their license, but but the consequences for the business, the employees, and business owner are, are quite draconian if they miss it. And I would suggest, and we have suggested, moving the grace period back even five years, because at the end of the day, it's within that five-year period for renewal of the license, and that is still a subsisting license for anything after that five years as well. So, and you can have fines to make sure that uh, that that it's uh, that, that that there's a suitable punishment as opposed to having to go because one of the things is when you go back for a new license you have to advertise that new license and that allows people to come in and object to your license and that's invite if for, that's inviting in local competitors to to make mischief if you like yeah. which is again slightly perhaps unfair could that be used the other way though if you had a a, a licensee who um, where there was where it was problematic 
um, amongst the community that the, the, the premises was in or problematic because of reports from PSNI or whatever else, that they this just gives them a longer period um, without renewing their license because they know that the objections, albeit many of those objections, may be well founded. Um, could that be used then for the other, on the other hand as well? I, 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 I think that's a very good point. Uh, Chair, I would say that's a very good point. Um, I'm not aware of how often that's occurred. Obviously, uh, the police have powers to intervene in licensed premises and things of that nature as well. Um, I find the only time that the only time I've seen the renewal process used for that purpose is uh, recently there was uh, some objections taken by bookmakers to what they call illegal gambling. Uh, in certain areas of the province, you know, taking bets over the phone and things like that. And the bookmakers use the renewal process to come in there. Uh, in terms of other times the renewal process has been used, I'm not really aware, apart from that, that that's a regular, a regular process. I think there would still be the safeguard, Chair, that the out-of-time renewals go to the court. So a renewal process can be purely um, an administrative procedure uh, and can be done on the papers um, up until it's out of time. And then when it's an out of time renewal, it is before a judge. So there will still be that element where someone will be checking it and the police will be asked to comment. So if there's an issue with the premises, that will certainly be brought before the court in any event, even if it's just slightly out of time and the license holders paid a penalty. Just another, que just another question and um it's to do again with licensing, where you've had issues, uh, because we all we are all constituency uh, representatives, and there are issues to arise from time to time, not very often though, um, to do with specific license premises, and uh, where there has been reports, PSNI, it's gone to court, whatever else, and then the license gets moved into another name, and they then continue to go along doing exactly the same thing until they're brought back to court again. And we know that takes a very long time. We know the police powers and the powers of environmental health and council and all of those takes a long time and actually takes where you have to have actual evidence um, that, that a license holder has done something wrong. Um, is there anything on, on that issue as well that we need to look at? Well, whenever a license changes names, it has to go through a formal process known as a transfer before the court. So if I go from, say, Colin Mitchell to Mia Fisher in terms of a license, it's, it has to go by way of transfer. That transfer gets, uh, gets advertised. And as I recall, if I'm correct, one of the tests is that the person is being transferred to is or isn't a fit person to hold a license. Yeah. Yeah. So there is, you know, the, the, that transfer application gets served in the police and gets advertised in local newspapers. So there's the opportunity to say, look, we're going to object this transfer on these grounds. The process is already there to, 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 to control that behaviour. No, and I suppose, I mean, it's going back again at, at, at the comment you had made in your submission about ambiguity. Um, so we do need to be very careful in everything that we do here in this bill, um, that it isn't open for um, interpretation. Um, by others, and I think you're absolutely right. You, I don't know if you'd heard the Copeland Distillery point last week about their occasional licences and how each different jurisdiction is open to their own um, understanding of, of high things. So I think you're absolutely right. It does need to be across the board, and we do need to be very careful in our wording. Chair, can I come in there on occasional licences? Yeah. This seems like a good juncture to bring it in. I was interested to hear that 
Now, occasional licenses uh, can only be used for certain purposes, okay? A social, organized by bodies uh, created for social, charitable, benevolent, sporting uh, occasions. So therefore, for example, your farmer's market, your Christmas market, for example, would be covered by that. Dinners by, by various societies will be covered by that, things like that. What is not covered by that uh, is things that don't fall in those categories. For example, weddings are not covered by occasional licenses. Also, I, I, I would suspect, and I don't know, but I would suspect that some breweries are applying for occasional licenses and not getting them because they're not bodies organized for charitable, benevolent, sporting purposes. And that's being picked up in some jurisdictions, some police and council jurisdictions, but not others. Yeah. And I would strongly suspect that's what's going on because even though weddings aren't covered, uh, some licensees will chuck the application for a wedding to their local county court or the target pay sessions and it will get granted, but it won't in others. Uh, and and, and I, I would suggest that's what's going on. The other problem with, uh, with occasional licenses is uh, and this is being solved by the, by the legislation actually, is that when you get in a case of license now, in many circumstances, if you want children to be at that particular event, you need to get yourself a children's certificate, which requires a plan, setting out where the children can and can't be and everything else. And that's been a problem where some people haven't been able to get occasional licenses for, for that reason, round about markets and round about festivals. Um, and therefore case licenses have been problematic, but that will be solved the legislation by getting rid of the need for children's certificate. Yeah. Uh, look, thank you. That, that's all very, very interesting. Um, I might come back to you um, later on. I've got one member just has, or sorry, two, of two of Kelly and then of Robin. So can members please put their hands up if they want to come in? And can I go to Kelly first? Kelly? Kelly in? Please. There we are, Kelly Atchian. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Maven Colin. Um, there's a number of, of legal pieces um, that you have mentioned there. The harmonisation or harmonised definition of entertainment was an interesting one. Um, do you believe then that we should be thinking back to that 1996 order? Or, yeah. Or, yeah. What, okay. what What's going on there is is that in the licensing order. The license, if you want to uh, provide entertainment at your licensed premises, you need, of course, an entertainment license under the Miscellaneous Provisions Act. I think it's 985 now, I can't remember. And then if it, but, uh, along with the liquor license, but the liquor license says that the entertainment has to be people actually present and performing. But the entertainment license definition of entertainment is a lot wider than that. And therefore that has come back to historically problems DJs, for example, pub quizzes, things of this nature, what is actually covered as entertainment? Uh, and that's a long-standing issue. So you need an entertainment license which covers all sorts of entertainment, that's okay, but then you don't, uh, but then the licensing order in 1996 is a lot more restrictive in what that entertainment actually should be. Okay, okay, okay. And I think the issue of um, entertainment uh, came into play with COVID and the, and the regulations too um, and there was a bit of confusion over what would be entertainment and what could be on premises as well so I, I think it would really helpful be helpful for that to be clarified. Okay no that's useful because it, it it gives us something legally you know people often can, are concerned that legislators don't tie up ends together so that was that's particularly useful and um, 
The other thing that you've mentioned under 2C in your paper is judicial, it should be a judicial function, not for the police or for the department, I take it, to make decisions. Um, so I'll let you get time to get to that, 2C. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking within the bill at the moment, it does refer to the police and the department um, and not judiciary. Is, do you think that's wrong then? That, that's a real departure. I think, Kelly, from the current position, and, and that's what we were trying to gauge it from. So anyone who's made the applications previously or anything they've applied for being granted before under the licensing order, it's always through the court. And, and that's really the, the system in Northern Ireland, and it keeps well-regulated uh, and, and play. You know, our concern about the thing here, there. Else having those powers, yeah. not sure how that work moving forward or issues with as well. Okay, no, that that's really useful. To be honest, I don't have any other questions about the rest of it because I can completely understand. Very well written, Ms. Ms. Armstrong, can I, can I come in there a second just to speak to you? Uh, I think I don't know if this point was dealt with by me whenever I was off. But you made a comment, I think, to one of the previous submissions about uh, whether a brewery license would be uh, could just go through the courts on the simple process as opposed to a subsisting license and it would be cheaper. I don't know if you may have dealt with that, but uh, any licensing application, whether it's for a restaurant, a conference centre, a hotel uh, or a pub, is a very complicated court process. It requires architects and plans. It, it, it requires advertising the papers, expensive court fees. And also, every time you do, you want to open yourself up to a possible objection. An unobjected application uh, without a subsisting license, even for a restaurant, can be between five and ten thousand pounds. And all, what if it is objected to? Then you can then you, all bets are off. I don't know if we have dealt with that, but I just wanted to clarify that point. It wasn't the simpleness. It's not simple. Um, it was the fact that the cost, that that legal cost, should be the same for all, all licensed yeah. applications. Yes. Nobody would have a different version. The difference is that when you get into um, those who have pub licences, there are costs that come into that that are outside of the court's controls. Um, you know, the negotiations that happen between seller and buyer can push those licences to extraordinary costs. Yeah. But I think that we can only consider that if it's a licence and people are applying for licence through the courts, that you're absolutely right. There are fees there. Those fees, to be honest, compared to £100,000, £5,000 is quite small. Um, so I think we have to be clear that the cost of a licence should be the same, I think, across the whole of the industry. Um, but the, the variance and the negotiated costs are outside of our control yeah. of costs, surrender principle. Yeah. Yes, well, that, that was what we'd ask for the clarity on, I think, is the subsisting licence principle. So um, if we are discussing the fact that a tap room that people have put forward, you know, that that would be a, a, a likeness to a pub and that a subsisting licence would be necessary in that. And obviously that's where the cost element really comes in, in terms of uh, the other types of licence, a new category of licence, yes, that all the court costs would be similar, um, as you say. So, you know, if it's £568 to make an application for a pub, that it would be the same court fee uh, for a producer's licence and that they would maybe have the same 
uh, requirements maybe to advertise in the same way so that people could object in terms of fitness and the premises, stuff like that, so they would have the similar cost of making application? Yeah, no, absolutely agree with that. The only concern that I have, and I can completely understand pubs' concerns and hotels' concerns, is uh, a tap room attached to a producer's license uh, or a producer, whatever way it's going to work, um, will be at a fixed premises because it has to be where the produce is being made, um, and therefore it's not as flexible as the other. But yeah, but no, the fees have to be. We, we can't make a difference with that. They have to be across the board. Thank you very much for that, folks. That was really, really useful. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Kelly. I have Robin and then Mark. Robin. Uh, thank you, Chair, and I uh, thank Maeve and Colin for coming in. And As you said, Chair, the Law Society has no commercial interest in this, uh, so it's a, a very a useful uh, uh, information. Can I just ask you, it's a fairly simple question. The society, uh, and particularly around clauses 6 and 25, uh, and indeed they would be supportive of the approach in clause 18, where I think you're suggesting that um, giving powers to the department around six, clause 6 and 25 um, may not be um, the best way of doing things, taking the powers away from the court, and indeed wanting the court, court to permit in terms of Clause 18, uh, you would be supportive of that. Could you maybe just say a wee bit more what your concerns are there? I think at the minute, um, obviously, the system that we are used to um, is very much court-based uh, with judicial restriction, um, and that uh, helps because you know what you need to put forward, what can be approved, what's allowed, and it, it's very clear. There's a real clarity there. Um, I think our concern would be without that clarity, without it being listed very carefully in the session, with the department having the separate controls, um, that we that it's not following the process so far. So we, we, we're not entirely sure how it would work. Um, that everything before and i know people call the system restrictive but certainly that's what's in place and it has to be followed and there's very clear sanctions and, and you can follow that clearly and um, where we can't see how that would be approved what the department would take into consideration and sort of the additional powers they would have that's where we would have concerns and i think looking at it in terms of um existing license holders it's not what they have had to go through, you know, they've gone through a very much stricter process. So I think it, it that opens up a bit of ambiguity. Can I come in there, Maeve? The other thing as well, and it's maybe not such a legal point, the use of courts in these circumstances is a very solemn process, and a very sobering process for anyone to enter the licence trade. So whenever you're dealing with a regulated substance such as alcohol and saying to the public, the courts, uh, the, the courts and going through the courts, uh, really apart from anything else, gives a very, very high level of scrutiny but also emphasizes to anybody entering the, 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 the trade just exactly the importance of the role and the license that they are applying for. Okay, that's fine. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Maven, Colin. Okay, thanks, Robin. I'm going to move on to Mark. We can bring Mark Durkin in. Oh, has Mark disappeared off my screen completely? He was there with his I hand. I don't know what's happened. Oh, okay. Chair, it's been playing up a wee bit. There we are. Go uh, ahead, Mark. I can hear you. 
Thank you, Colin and Maeve. Uh, I have a, a couple of questions. I'm sorry, mate, as you can see, my, my device is playing up a wee bit. It did there now, and it did during uh, Kelly's question. Now, Kelly had touched on the definition of entertainment, and he, he, he had said how, how difficult that is. I was just wondering, are there any statutory definitions of entertainment from other jurisdictions that we that were aware that could be helpful for us to consider? I'm not particularly aware of any. I mean, I'm, I'm used to Northern Ireland one, and I haven't looked at other definitions elsewhere, Mr. Durkin, to, 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 to really give you any guidance on that, in particular the two I'm used to working with, the two local ones. I'm the same. Unfortunately, it is certainly something we could look up, um, but I think there just needs to be a clarity here, certainly in terms of there is a difference at the minute. Um, but certainly could look at the other jurisdictions. I would, I would. Uh, what what I would come in and say is, it, I, I think you have the this, you have the definition of entertainment in the uh, in the entertainment license legislation. I, I think what we're saying now is is that given the way entertainment has moved on and, and how things are done, is there really any need? Uh, for the for the restriction in the 1996 Act, I think I think that's really uh, yeah, what's too restrictive. What, yeah. what we're saying. Yeah, and I suppose any definition that you take will have to be flexible because there, there, there's yes. new, new entertainments crop up all the time. Yeah. Okay, and, and then the other question I was going to ask was around employment law, and, and I know you've been watching some of the evidence sessions, and you, you might have seen with representative from Unite uh, the Union. I was just wondering, how would the changes to open hours interact with employment law in terms of staff working later, even more on social hours? Well, I I don't think me is either. Neither of us are particularly uh, <laughs> employment lawyers. Um, but it, 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 it is something that's going to have to be looked at. There's obviously working time and everything like that. And, the, and I suppose we're all discovering where we all stand with Brexit, the protocol and everything else as to what applies and what doesn't. One of the things that, uh, you know, if, uh, if, if, hours are going, if hours are going to rise, uh, any employer, when looking at uh, their employment contracts and how they interact with their employees, has to have uh, be conscious of uh, what they're allowed to do in the law in terms of hours and everything else. Now, the later hours themselves wouldn't necessarily be the issue. The issue, presumed, would be the total number of hours they're working under contract per week uh, is, is, is what they have to do. So maybe it'd be the employers have to employ more people to, uh, to and work different shift patterns to cover this. Yeah, and, and I know we have sought a bit of clarity from the Department for the economy as well on this, but it's just, I'm, I'm sorry, you aren't employment law specialists, so sorry to put you on the spot of that, but it was just in terms of are wondering where workers would stand in relation to declining to work later hours or you know what entitlements they might have in terms of uh, claiming the cost of a taxi home with a after a certain hour or, or whatever but we'll, we'll maybe drill further down into that when we get the stuff back from DFE. Okay, thank you. all right, thank you. Thanks, Mark. Um, there's no other member has indicated that they want to ask anything further. Um, so can I just say a big thank you to both yourself, Maeve and, and Colin. Um, really was very, very interesting briefing, very interesting submission because you're coming from a different angle than many of our other um, witness sessions. Um, so thank you very much for, for joining us today and for answering all of our questions. So thank you. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.
Okay, members, um, that's our witness sessions for today finished, and it's 10 past 12, which is most unusual for us as a committee, because normally it's 10 past 1 and I'm speed reading the final part of the meeting. So I think we could maybe use this. So I just want to outline a couple of wee bits and pieces to you um, on our planned timetable table and remaining committee stage of the bill, um, just to get your views on the issues and, um, and for uh, future sessions. So the final evidence session will take place at the meeting on the 4th of March, and then we will use the meeting on the 11th and the 18th, and maybe also the 25th for our deliberations on possible amendments and that committee staff uh, will draft up a summary paper of issues for discussion at these meetings and we'll go through each issue and see how the committee wants to proceed on each of those issues and then I propose that we invite officials from the department and the bill office to attend those meetings uh, also to answer any queries um, that can be dealt with immediately and to indicate if they would be prepared to bring forward any amendments suggested by the committee or if the minister or department will bring forward the proposed amendments themselves. Um, the bill office official from the assembly can also provide advice um, to us in terms of any possible amendments we might want to consider. So I just thought members, as we do have a little bit of time, um, maybe it would be useful if any members wanted to outline any key issues um, so far um, for the department that might be useful for us to send to the department um, and just I mean nothing that we're going to say here is is final or binding and it's certainly not one person's view is certainly not committee view um, just to put that out there to anybody that might be listening beyond uh, beyond the, the, the eight of us um, so it's just to uh, just what members think that they might want to bring up or just based on that I mean I know um, certainly we, we've got the issue around the producers license and um, the cost around that we also have you know how far do we want to, to progress that issue um, with our with our, our local brewers distilleries and cideries of, of um, uh, what the producer's licence can entail and, and allow them to do. Um, so we have that issue. Um, I just see, Mark, you have someone with you now for the meeting. Sorry. You're all right. You're okay. It's quite all right. Um, <laughs> you're all right. Um, so we know that's a big issue. Um, we uh, There's been various issues there have been highlighted from um, the, the, the Law Society and others today as well. So I'm just going to open it up to members. You're all on now on the spotlight. So please feel free if anybody wants to come in and make some comments that we want to, to, to bring forward or what they would want the committee to bring forward. Anybody want to speak? Go ahead, Kelly. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say it's come up a few times, Chair, about the codes of practices. Um, I don't know what the department's view is on them having responsibility for the codes of practices, and I'm a bit concerned that we don't we haven't had that so far. Now it may come, but um, I'm just not sure about that. Um, it's it's one thing that has come up more and more where some are saying code. Well, most are saying a code of practice is appropriate but it's if it's statutory or a voluntary thing um and i don't know whether we as a committee yet have had confirmation of the best way for it in fact the law center or the, the legal people here today are the first ones that have sort of indicated that it should be anything should be judicial as opposed to departmental or or for the place to decide um so i don't know i i don't know how any others feel about that with those codes of practices um i'm a bit concerned that we're 
there's been so much said about them. I just don't know where the the legal position of those practices would lie. I know, and I know I've kind of bounced people on this issue and not sort of given you any forewarning that I wanted to discuss this, I suppose. Um, and, and it's hard to remember, actually, when we think back to all of those meetings that we have had, it's actually hard to, to actually collate that information in your head and think, OK, we need to discuss this, this and this. You know, I, I suppose, I mean, that, that's an issue, I think, that, will, that we will have to dis um, discuss further with the department when we're in our deliberations, certainly the one you brought up, Kelly. I mean, there's there's so many. There's also the issue around the advertising. I think we'll we'll have concern over the issue of the loyalty scheme that has been brought up and how that can possibly work um, when you have uh, multinationals. Um, so to just to, to for us to diverge off their normal schemes, how that's going to work. Um, you know, anything else anybody else wants to bring up? Sure. Yes, go ahead, Nate. Um, yeah, I suppose I could see the elephant in the room, um, and I'm not advocating a position either way. But you know, most the common one of the common threads throughout all our, our evidence taking sessions has been whether we are content with the, the legislation as, as it is proposed, as it is in terms of the, the the producer's license, or whether you know there is we've heard enough to convince either us or the department that there needs to be a change in terms of the tap room issue. So I think that's going to be. Um, something that we're going to have to spend some time just to, to go back over the evidence we've seen and see whether we as a committee are convinced or whether I'm sure we'll hear from departmental officials as to whether they've been convinced, uh, whether the department has been convinced of that um, as well. So just, you know, just to put it out there, that's probably going to be one of our big areas of, of work. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on, Sinead. Um, it is going to be one, and we are—we're going to be. People are watching us on this just to see what way the committee move on this. Of course, that doesn't stop any other member um, of the assembly who's not on this committee, of course, bringing forward yeah. amendments as well to this bill, or to our, yeah. you know. So yeah, I think you're spot on. Absolutely, that will be a big one. Um, any other members want to raise any other thing? Um, just uh, just uh, Janice wants to just say a few words. Chair, um, just let you, you know that uh, the department are obviously watching and listening yeah. and I am liaising with the bill team in the department and they will um, be coming forward with uh, a sort of written briefing for us in due course, really to clear up any um, misunderstandings that have arisen regarding what some of the clauses may or may not do to try and speed up the deliberations when we get to that point, you know, because the just speaking to them, they've said there's the odd thing, you know, that they could clear up quickly yeah. Yeah. for us. So that is going on behind the scenes, you know. No, and that's good. Um, we had sent a, a list of questions to the department based <coughs> on uh, the raised briefing paper, and they have come back with a response to that, and that will be in the pack next week. So okay, no, that'll okay. take it forward. Um, sure. Yeah, go ahead, Sinead. I suppose, yeah, as well, just, and I'm sure that will be included in the, uh, what Janice has just outlined there now in terms of the feedback from the department, but just that, and you raised it as well around the advertising, um, because there, there's things just on the evidence that I've, I've heard from some uh, some um, people and organisations that have briefed us, there seems to be a bit of confusion about that that element of, of the proposed legislation, and um, we picked up on it last week. Um, my reading of it is that, is that it, it doesn't chime with what the interpretation uh, the people have been given us that have come to brief. Um, so, you know, it, it, we just need a bit of clarity, I think, from the department as to how that would work in, in, in real life. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
Any, uh, I'm, I'm conscious that we still have some more briefings. I mean, we've got the PSNI, of course, to come in and brief us as well, and they mm -hmm. might flag up other issues from them as well. And as I say, none of this is, is, is final decisions that we're making here today. It's just that we can highlight some of those issues um, um, for those conversations with the clerk and the department as well. Um, if there's clarification sought on a few things. So if there's anything else, any member, um, the, and I know that uh, we've had so much information, it's nearly information overload in the past uh, a few weeks, or more than a few weeks. Um, so it, it's quite hard um, to put all of that into order as to what we do need to bring up. Um, but if there is anything, just feed it through to the committee clerk members, um, and we'll take it from there. Are members happy then we move on from that? That um, issue now, yeah? yeah? Okay. All right, I'm going to ask you all then to turn to agenda item nine, which are SL1s on the annual upgrading benefits, pensions, and lump sum payment. The proposed yeah. rules start at page 113. The rates of most Social Security ben benefits, pensions, and lump sum payments are reviewed each year and usually upgraded in April. And this package of proposed statutory rules relate to the annual upgrading. So can I just ask members at this stage, are you content for the department to proceed to make these rules? Agreed. Agreed. Content. Okay, thank you. We'll move on then to agenda item 10, which is our forward work programme. Um, members, at our meeting next week on the 18th of February, we will be briefed by the following organisations in relation to the licensing and registration of Clubs Amendment Bill. We'll have Tourism NI. We'll have the Wine and Spirit Trade Association and also the Institute of Licensing NI. Again, members content with agenda item 10? Content? Agreed. Thank okay. you. We'll move on then to agenda item 11, which is correspondence. Members will find the memo at page 127 of your meeting pack. And I just want to draw your attention to two items. The first one is at page 157 and is a letter from an individual in relation to the licensing bill. Can I ask members, are you content that a reply is sent to advise that the committee has taken evidence from a number of small brewers in relation to this issue? Um, and that, uh, I mean, the, the evidence sessions are at our time are on a stage where our people can come and brief us and say actually whatever they like within this, the, this remit of an evidence session. So members content with the way forward on that? Great. Okay. Then can I ask you to turn to page 160? And there's a letter from the Belfast Metropolitan Residence Group in relation to reviving towns and city centres. The group would like to know if there is support within the committee for reviving work on this scheme. Um, so I know this is something maybe more so for Belfast, but it does affect many of our, our smaller towns and villages as well. Um, when we look at this scheme. So um, I would certainly like to maybe get a written briefing from the, the Belfast Metropolitan Residence Group and just ask members if they have any comment on that. Chair, Chair it's, not so long, it's not so long ago that there was a debate in yeah. this uh, chamber on the matter and it, I don't think it found favour with the, the minister no. at, at that time. Um, it did still pass, though, as uh, in uh, the, the chamber, so it did the motion, from uh, what uh, I remember. Uh, yeah, indeed. Uh, I have to say, Chair, uh, I think there's huge potential yeah. uh, in, in that area of development, and I agree with you, it's not just Belfast, it's the, the smaller towns and villages where, where it uh, could happen. I remember quoting on that, uh, at that debate that in 
London. There was a three bedroom flat for sale above a chip shop, <coughs> 3.2 million, if I remember. So I, I know we're not London, but it shows the potential of it. So. And I think very much if we look at post COVID and the recovery of our towns and villages, this will be something that could um, possibly assist for that. So members contend that we ask for a, a, a written uh, briefing from them Indeed, yeah. at this stage. Yes, that, yeah. Go ahead, Mark. That, that, that would be great, Chair. Just I suppose harking back to the debate that, that Robin has raised there, and I don't want to speak for, for the Minister's party, but I mean, I, I oppose that motion or supported an amendment to it, it's because the motion that was brought forward, I think, made no reference to housing need or anything like that. I, I, I think when speaking, all parties actually recognise the benefits of uh, living over the shops yeah. scheme, but uh, they, they go with what the motion was calling for, which was basically grants for people to have apartments yeah. over shops with no no strings attached. And Robin, I think there he was referring to a, a flat uh, over, over a chip shop and the price of it. That's sort of defeating the argument that you were making in the debate, to be honest, Robin, because that's like saying, oh, we'll give someone uh, a £50,000 grant to, to, to make a flat over the shop and then they'll make money inside of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we need to just look at this. And I mean, it, 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 it can be whatever type of housing it needs to be, whether it's social, whether it's affordable, um, whatever that might be. We need to look at the bigger picture here of the revitalisation. But, but definitely supportive. Yeah, yeah. Just, I just want a written brief and I'm asking for at this stage if members are in agreement. Agree. Okay. So. All right, members, can I then ask anybody under correspondence um, if you have anything to highlight? And if not, are you content then with the correspondence memo as drafted? So, Chair, it's on the casement one. I was maybe going to wait the, any other business for this one with the minister in there. It's just to try and establish some clarity around this business case sort of delay. Now, in, in my view, the green form or lack of green form is a red herring. Uh, I remember, and, and some members will recall, and I mean, Gail, I'm sure Sinead will recall that there was a previous plan and approval for casement. Sadly, like, uh, it was overturned by court or it was ruled on unlawful. But I mean, prior to that approval, or prior to the issue of any green form, there was no green form issue. We knew the stadium cost 76, would cost £77 million. million pounds. So I, I, I don't know how the cost is. This stuff can't be done. There's been a clear indication of support or an intent to approve from DFI. I, I, I wonder could we maybe seek from the department a, a timeline or again an explanation in writing as to where we're at and why, why we're there and most importantly how we get beyond it. Okay, no, I, I certainly can ask for that, and it might even be useful for, for members as well, it might be useful for myself certainly, to get a timeline actually from, from the very beginning and why we are in the position that we're in now as well, just would help some, certainly help me understand as well, but I think you're right, Mark. Um, as long as it doesn't mention that court case. Oh, hi, that's right, yeah, that one. <laughs> Forgot about that. Yeah. Sure. Go, hold, hold on, if Andy sure. just has signalled here, and, oh, sorry, if Andy and then I'll bring you in. If I can just expand that, Chair, um, further to Robin's point to the Minister, if we can also do the same for sub-regional, because I'm still not clear in my head looking at the forecast 
as to you know the minister wants to get it progressed before the end of this mandate. Yeah. But I don't see much of the the financial output being delivered until they think it's the 23-24 financial year when there's 20 odd million earmarked for, for sub-regional. So I'd like to understand a better timeline as to when clubs can expect to be uh, cutting the sod as, as, as Robin uh, framed it. Okay, we can add that in as well. Sinead? Thanks, sure, yeah. Listen, as I said to the Minister earlier, I, I actually wrote to her last week um, along the same lines as what Mark has, has outlined there. Um, but just in light of what she has said today, um, in terms of where it sits at the minute, I think it would also be prudent for us to write to the Minister for Infrastructure to ask her for an update as to where it's at, um, who, how many, um, how many full, full-time planners are actually sitting down and working on this to, to get us to a point where the business case can proceed. So I think it'd be prudent for a letter to go also go to the uh, Department for Infrastructure um, to get an update on, on the, the actual the timeline of the planning application and where it's at. Okay, yep, we can do that also, not a problem. Um, any other comments members want to make on correspondence? Kelly? Uh, yes, sorry, Chair, just going to one, page 163, um, we've received that letter. Um, well, it's it's actually for Minister Murphy um, regarding the CEV people. Um, I'm sure like others, there are many who are concerned that if someone is clinically extremely vulnerable, that they're not qualifying for SSP at the moment, and that has a connection just to our committee because of the benefits issue. Should we maybe be writing to, um, I don't know, Department of Finance, Minister, the Department of the Economy, to get clarification? Because there is confusion over this out here, and um, it is part of you know people's benefits that they're actually having to now leave work and go on to universal credit because they've run out of time, you know, the, the, the amount of period of time that they have on SSP has come to a stop and, and employers are, are letting people go on that basis. Um, so I'm just wondering if we can get maybe a written clarification just from most departments as to what's happening. Okay, yes, we can do that as well, absolutely. Okay, members, any other comments they want to make? Are we content that we move on then from the correspondence memo? Yeah? Okay. All right, then we're going to move to agenda item number 12, which is any other business. So, members, any other relevant business? Andy? Yeah, sure. If I can just ask, um, if we, we haven't received any updates on the, the advice sector funding, I know there's obviously a wider debate around the draft budget, but I think, if I can recall, one of the uh, other members raised about the uh, Minister's announcement previously about three-year funding package for the advice sector. I know I've been contacted by those in the advice sector around concerns, around redundancies, etc. And, and indeed, one, one organisation in particular that provides uh, support for tribunals, which are, are, are backlogged at the moment. So that, that sector is very, very important, as is the whole sector. So if we can get an update from the department where things are. Okay. Yeah, we can do that also. Yep. Thanks, Andy. Any other member, any other business? No? No? Okay. Content we move on? Yes? All right. We'll move on then to agenda item 13, which is date, time and location of our next meeting. Our next meeting will take place here in room 29 next Thursday, the 18th of February at 9.15am. Thank you very much, members. Okay.